Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This episode is sponsored by Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Hey, as a quick heads up, I want to let you know that in my real life, you know I'm Conrad, the mortgage guy. But we don't call our folks who help people save money loan officers like they do at the bank. I always thought that sounded terrible. Instead, we want to be your mortgage advisor. In fact, we want to be your mortgage advisor for life. And we take that honor very seriously. Check out this 4.83 star review. That's right. 4.83 from Jeffrey in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He says, I had worked with you last year to refinance our home before the interest rates dropped. Your team reached out to me to do the process again, to save me more money and ensure that I had the best rate possible. I've never been treated as just another person on the to-do list. Even after I was done doing business, they were still looking to see that I was in the best financial place possible. We're going to go ahead and take a look at your whole financial situation and see if we can improve it. Maybe you've got equity in your house and you've got some high interest rate credit cards. We've probably got some mathematical solutions to get you out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments. Maybe we take a look at your current homeowner's insurance and realize, hey, uh, that might be kind of high. You might need another quote. Maybe we're going to make sure that you filed homestead on your house to make sure you've got the best deal on your property taxes. Whatever your circumstance is, if it's home related, we're going to try to take a look and find a way to get you the best deal possible. Just like they say on old WWE programming then now and forever you know it's like they used to say because when you're safe with conrad you're safe with conrad for life no seriously we want to help you save some cash and we want to do it today at savewithconrad.com nmls number 65084 equal housing lender you don't need perfect credit you don't need money out of your pocket and you can skip your next two house payments what are you waiting for get a quote right now find out how much money you can save for free at savewithconrad.com It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad, I am rolling, and not in the MDMA, ecstasy, molly sense of the word, (laughs) but in the 
Val Kilmer character Doc Holliday in the infamous Western movie Tombstone, I am rolling. This is going to be a good show. In case you just tuned in, you're not sure whether you want to listen to the whole podcast, do not go away. This is going to be a great podcast. It's Victory Road 2011. That's our topic today. This is that show. Uh, 10 years ago is when this one went down, and it's been one of our most requested shows. But before we get into it, Eric, I got to say, I never expected you to know anything about Molly or MDMA. Kind of felt like that was a generation behind you. You pulled that out of your back pocket, or have you just been watching some documentaries, or is there more than meets the eye here? There's a lot you don't know about me, Conrad. I'm gathering that. (laughs) There's a lot you don't know about me. Well, what I do know is next week, we're going to be talking about WCW greed, which was the very last WCW pay-per-view. I can't believe this is a real thing that we're going to finally talk about the last one. They're only around for another week or so after this. And then that's all she wrote, but that's what we're talking about next week. I think the tagline was it's all or nothing, baby. And it turns out it was nothing, baby. (laughs) Uh, but today, be careful careful what you name shit. Yeah. They spoke that into existence right there. Uh, victory road, 2011, though, is it it's one of the most, shall we say infamous TNA shows of all time, perhaps for all the wrong reasons. Before we get into the show itself, let's talk about how we got to this show at against all odds. Jeff Hardy beat Mr. Anderson to win the TNA world title in a ladder match. Jeff Jarrett beat Kurt angle, bully Ray defeated brother Devon and RVD beat Matt Hardy. We just covered that in the archives over at 83 weeks.com. And Ric Flair in his first TV show after against all odds turned on fortune, which Dave Meltzer called months premature premature. What do you think about that? Why turn flair this soon on the group? Oh, I don't know. You know, I'd have to really go back and study what had happened in the, the weeks and even maybe month, month and a half leading up to that, um, to be able to speak to it with any real, um, clarity. So it's hard for me to say I would, I would, if I have, if I was put on the spot as I am right now and, and was, you know, forced to take a guess, I would say that, uh, the chemistry probably wasn't what we thought it would be. And the idea of associating with flair with fortune, um, needed a shot in the arm and we needed to make a change. Well, the change is coming here. Uh, Hernandez almost kills Doug Williams with a border toss on this TV show. Did Hernandez ever take any heat back in the day, as far as his perceived reputation online for being reckless? I never thought he was, but we do get some comments on Twitter every now and again. I always thought Hernandez was one of those great. What ifs in wrestling, but apparently some of our listeners think maybe he was uh, a touch reckless at times. Well, reckless to me implies a, a lack of caring, um, yeah. a, a lack of concern for your opponent, um, being somewhat selfish in the ring and only being concerned to yourself and I, with yourself. And I don't think that was the case with Hernandez. Do I think Hernandez sometimes executed moves um, that he wasn't experienced enough in? 
Absolutely. The guy did not have a lot of experience. And when you're trying to push that envelope and trying to do things that are really dynamic and fun to watch and, and explosive, but you really don't have the experience that gives you the timing and the finesse and the nuance of being able to really protect your opponent in the process, it can appear reckless. And indeed, in, in some definition of the term, it is. Uh, because, you know, in Hernandez's case, he was trying things that he really should not have been doing because of that lack of experience. But I don't think it was intentional. And to me, reckless implies in, intentional um, or lack of caring. And I don't think that was the case with Hernandez. I just think it was green. Let's talk about uh, the network. You constantly in this era were on TV referring to the network and they're meddling in the show. And how they want ratings and that's what they pay the big bucks for, et cetera, et cetera. Why not call them spike? What's the the thinking there as to it's a simple adjustment. I'm sure, but I'm sure you have a logical explanation or reason why to call them the network and not spike. Uh, it was more, um, input from the network, uh, from spike, okay. from Scott Fishman, from Kevin K who, who was the president of the network. Uh, they didn't mind the idea of using the network in a general sense as a, as an authority figure in a way, it was, you know, the network became a character in the show, much like a commissioner would back in the day before general managers. Um, so they didn't mind that, but they didn't want to be identified uh, as spike TV. They felt that was a little bit too close to the home and branding the network with a wrestling show a little bit more than they felt comfortable. So it was their directive really to, to, um, you know, when we wanted to refer to that entity, it being the network, as opposed to being spike TV, go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Let's, uh, let's talk about something in the observer here, because I think this is worth discussing. Meltzer would write second rate stone cold. Mr. Anderson came out trying to do the nineties. Mr. McMahon angle with Bischoff. He wanted a title shot. Bischoff said the network demanded the title shot with Van Dam getting the shot. Anderson wanted to know why he didn't get the shot. Well, he did just lose a ladder match, but no, it's not about Sorry, but no, it's about him not appealing to the right demographic. The idea was the network doesn't like him because he says asshole. And then he proceeded to say asshole about 20 times. Bischoff said he could be the special ref. And if he called it down the middle, maybe he could get a rematch. Anderson agreed, shook Bischoff's hand and gave him a mic check. A lot to unpack here, but this does feel like, Hey, we've seen this before. This is the angle Austin sort of dynamic or not the angle Austin dynamic, the McMahon Austin angle dynamic with you two. Do you think this persona fit Mr. Anderson or was this not the right spot for him creatively? Look, it, it, it certainly smelled like, uh, it walked like talked like, and smelled like the Vince McMahon's Steve Austin angle. There's no denying that. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll admit that, you know, there's very few stories that feel original, right? Everything's borrowed. You yeah. can always look at just about anything that's going on and say, yeah, but that's, that's really kind of like that other thing before it that's common. It's common in television shows. It's common in movies. 
You know, you find a formula, it works. You replicate it to a certain degree with different characters, different nuances in the story, but it still walks like, talks like, therefore is like, you know, angles that, that preceded it. It's not unusual. And I'm not going to deny that, you know, Ken Anderson's character had a, a hint of Steve Austin, maybe more than a hint of Steve Austin to it. Um, I was the authority figure. So yeah, of course it, it did feel very similar, but to your point or your question about Ken Anderson, you know, whether or not that character fit him or not, just listen to his promos. Right. Ken Anderson had the best promos in TNA for sure. Bar none. Nobody stood even close. Uh, and and it, it became evident on this show. I mean, Ken really was that character and it fit him very comfortably and he was good at it. So yeah. Did it, did it seem like Steve Austin? Of course it did. Um, did I care? No, I didn't. Did the audience care? Not really. Dave cared, which is fine because he's, you know, analyzing things and giving his opinion, which right. is fine. But, uh, I don't think it was a negative. It does feel a little bit like, uh, I don't I know you weren't watching ECW back in the day, but before they went under, they had Don Callis portray Cyrus, the virus, and he was the network representative here to say what the network wanted. So it almost feels like if you sort of squish together the stone cold character and instead of him railing against Mr. McMahon, he's railing against Cyrus, the virus from ECW, the network representative, that's what we get here. But to your point, there are no original ideas anymore. Something is always a bit of an adjustment or a tweak or a blatant ripoff of an idea that's happened before. You know what they call it in TV? What, in, in any form of television, at least the, the television that I've been involved with uh, outside of wrestling, nobody wants to say, hey, we're going to we're going to take that idea or we're going to rip off that idea or we're going to steal that concept. They use the term derivative mm. because derivative sounds like really smart. You know, <laughs> you, 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 derivatives are used in a world of finance. You know, people speak of derivatives and high finance. So it's kind of like. It's a get out of jail free card for stealing somebody else's shit. If you call it a derivative. <laughs> well, this is der- certainly a derivative. Um, do you think Mr. Anderson achieved all that he could have in TNA? I mean, it did feel like to your point, he was the best promo there, but I don't know that the fans got with him as much as maybe he hoped or TNA hoped was that down to creative or. I mean, what was it that was missing just a little bit from his character at the time? Well, what was missing was <clears throat> a machine behind him. There you go. You know, TNA was, was the little tricycle that could, as opposed to the machine that was the WWE. I don't think it had anything to do with, you know, Ken Anderson's character or his talents or his abilities, his characters, his character and talents and ability were, you know, manifesting inside of a company that was for the most part, you know, the tree that would fall in the forest every Thursday night at 8 PM. And very few people heard about it and nothing to do with Ken. It had a lot more to do with the, the push or the machine or the support, however you want to look at it behind you. Let's uh, let's move on a little bit and let's talk about the big buildup here in the ratings. On the way to victory road during these same weeks in 2010, you had a 1.19, a 1.2, a 1.14 and a 1.0 here a year later, 
you've got a 1.13, a 1.3, a 1.36 and a 1.25 for the go home show. It doesn't feel like a major building period year over year. You've often talked about here on the show that ratings were flat. And I think sometimes you explain that means you're not growing your audience. What was missing from TNA year over year here to keep them from growing? Was it, was it creative? Was it the network? Was it the time slot? Was it management? If you had to look back and sort of assess those ratings from 2010 to 2011, and they're essentially, you know, at a standstill, what's your takeaway? Well, let's first for, for the sake of our audience, because, you know, 10 years ago, everybody was reporting ratings. Now they're recording. Now they're reporting on total viewers. Yes. So in order to kind of keep things in perspective, because we know context is fucking king here, uh, a 1.2 would probably equate back in 2011 to, I don't know, a million three viewers, maybe a million four. I think the formula was, you know, when you look at a household, which is usually a reflection of ratings in, in the Nielsen formula, I, I think the average that Nielsen considers is 1.4, 1 1.5, or 1.6 million, or excuse me, 1.6 uh, viewers per household. So if you've got, you know, a one rating, which I think at that point was roughly about 980,000 households, you can do the math. And W, excuse me, TNA was probably holding steady in 2011 with somewhere between 1.1 and 1.4 million viewers on average each and every week. But to your point, they were flat. A good number today, you know, when you think about it in context today, if you look at Monday Night Raw, a program that has been a staple on the USA Network for decades, is one of the most successful shows on cable in prime time. Last week delivered 1.8 million viewers. It's really weird when you think about it. Right. We're in one sense, we're talking about TNA in 2011. That was essentially, in my words, you know, the tree that fell in the forest every Thursday night at eight o'clock in prime time that very few people heard about. Now we're looking at Monday Night Raw, which by anybody's, you know, evaluation or, or estimation is the hottest one of, I guess, next to SmackDown, hottest television shows on, on television week after week. And they're hovering around 1.8 million. Right. So it's a weird, weird analysis to make. But I think the reason, numbers aside, the the fact that TNA was flat had a lot more to do with lack of vision on TNA management's part, lack of commitment on TNA management's part. We've talked about this in the past. TNA didn't want to invest any money in TNA. What I should say is Panda Energy did not want to invest. They were the funding partner. Panda Energy did not want to invest any more money in TNA. Can you imagine if Vince McMahon or Tony Khan said, you know what? I don't want to put any more of my own money into this thing. It's either going to pay for itself or die. Right. I don't think either one of them would be around very long. And that's essentially, that essentially was the position of the funding partners for TNA. We're not going to put any more money in it. If it survives it on its own, great. If not, we're moving on. 
that would probably explain a lot more why TNA didn't reach the levels of success that it had the potential to reach. Certainly when you look at the roster that's on this card on previous cards, you know, Mick Foley, Cactus, excuse me, Mick Foley, um, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Kurt Angle, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Jeff Hardy, Matt Hardy, Rob Van Dam, AJ Styles. You know, look at the names that were in TNA throughout its existence, and none of those names mattered. None of those names moved the needle. Why is that? It's not because of the names. Those names had a track record of success when they left TNA. And went on after TNA shut down, effectively. They went on to become big stars. So they certainly had value in the eyes of the audience, but that value wasn't being exploited or extracted, however you want to say it, capitalized upon by TNA because they didn't want to invest in their own product. So by now, you know that Eric and I absolutely love our dogs. I'm posting pictures of my dogs, Ginger and Baby, on Instagram all the time over at Hey Hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Of course, at E. Bischoff on Twitter is where you'll see pictures of his dog, Nikki, all the time. And let me give you a little pro tip. Solid gold is the way to go if you really love your dog. Did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? Or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies? Solid gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America, started back in 74 by Sissy McGill. You see, Sissy was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted a male-dominated industry and created a natural pet food before it was cool. Sissy was inspired by European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes live longer than their American counterparts. Her first recipe, Hundenflocken, has now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for over 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pet's mind, body, and spirit. For over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category, and they have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs, Solid Gold Foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, they balance with living probiotics, and they fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids. They all support gut health and nourish your pet inside and out. Eric and I really believe in this. So does Bruce, by the way. Right now, to see the Solid Gold Deal of the Week, go to SolidGoldPet.com slash 83 weeks. That's SolidGoldPet.com slash 83 weeks to see the Deal of the Week. Remember, solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. By the way, that 1.36 rating we mentioned uh, was the highest rated show of the year, but we're going to talk about how we got there. I also want to talk about in this era, you start to take the show on the road. You've previously been doing TV from the impact zone. Now we're going to do TV tapings on the road in hindsight. Do you think TNA was ready for that at this point? I know that this is going to be debated a lot and has been already, Uh, but when you first came into power in WCW, you thought, Hey, we got to take this show off the road. Every time we, you know, leave here, we're losing money, but this is probably a horse of a different color, right? 
well, it's not quite apples to apples. Yeah. You know, my, my thinking or my strategy at WCW when I took over WCW and shut down house shows, not, not live events necessarily, or excuse me, television tapings necessarily, although we did move them to the Disney MGM studios. Um, but the situation was different. The conditions were different with TNA because it was my opinion coming into TNA and I watched very little of TNA, you know, before I started working there because I just couldn't stand watching it, frankly, watching wrestling week after week, you know, in a soundstage with an artificial crowd in an artificial environment produced artificial energy for me. It just wasn't interesting for me as, as a viewer and probably as a producer more than, than a viewers. Um, But in, in TNA, because they had the names, and I really believed in my heart, and I still do to this day, that one of the things that TNA needed to do, and I was the advocate, I was probably the loudest voice in TNA at the time about taking the show on the road. So whether it was a great idea or a bad idea, it would fall on me. And I very, I didn't try to use my influence. <laughs> there are people in TNA that are going to disagree with this, but... I, I try not to overly influence management decisions there because I didn't really want to be too involved in it. But when asked, you know, what do we need to do to get the ratings up? The answer is provide more energy to the viewers and you can't do it in a soundstage. We're seeing that now in an extreme version of that now in both WWE and AEW where you can't produce shows in front of a live crowd. That sucks the life that sucks the energy out of the product. It sucks the emotion out of the product because as a viewer, you're sitting there and you're watching a party. You, you can't be at the party necessarily, but you're watching this party like a voyeur and, and you're living vicariously, not only through the action that you see going on and hopefully, but rarely the story associated with it, but you're, you're, you're sensing and kind of living vicariously through the crowd who is really animated and into what they're seeing. That's what makes wrestling work, in my opinion. That's why wrestling has been the success that it's been since the beginning of television time, in my opinion. Not necessarily the show that's taking place or the, or, or the action that's taking place in the ring. That's a necessary. You need, need to have that in order to create emotion. But when you're sitting at home and you're watching 3,000, 4,000, 10,000, in the case of WWE, 15,000 people having a blast, you feel good about being at that party, even if you're just watching it. Take that energy and that emotion away and the reactions and responses and all that. Take, take all that away. And what are you left with? Eh, not so much. So, yeah, I was a big advocate for it. Now, the difference is I was trying to build the television show by utilizing the audience and not producing a show that actually looked and felt the same each and every week because it was coming from that little box, much like WCW Worldwide Syndicated did when I was producing shows at the Disney MGM Studios. The upside for us was there was an economy of scale by doing so, we couldn't draw people to a television taping in a traditional, you know, arena environment, much like TNA had a hard time doing. So I moved it to the box in that sterile environment because that sterile environment was at least better than a half a dozen drunks sitting around sleeping at ringside at center stage. Um, 
But in TNA, I felt like you've got all this great talent that would draw. It would bring a crowd. You could put 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people at a television tipping. And by the way, we did. So, you know, my, my calculations were pretty correct. And, and those shows would have more energy, but that's a long-term strategy. You can't expect, you know, a, a seven-day turnaround on your, you know, ROI, your return on investment. You can't expect, well, okay, wow, we took the show on the road. All of a sudden, you know, things have changed dramatically. It's something that takes time and consistency. And, and, and you start developing or building expectation, anticipation in the audience, because now they know when they tune in on Thursday night, they're going to be satisfied. That emotional itch that they want to be scratched by watching wrestling is going to be satisfied when they see an event taking place with big names in front of a big crowd that are reacting like real people and not like props that are you know brought in from the theme park. So it, it was a strategy. I think it was a good strategy. I think if TNA would have had more discipline and maybe a longer view of things and been committed to it in a longer term, the fate of TNA might be different than what it is today. How do you reconcile? We're going to go on the road and we're going to have more expenses, but at the same time, this is a company you just said a moment ago, wasn't willing to spend any more money and wasn't willing to put the machine behind Ken Anderson. This feels like a company with a bit of an identity crisis. They don't know what they want to do. They're sort of hokey pokey. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, that's really, that's really accurate. And it's a good observation. And I think, you know, you and I have both defended Dixie Carter, Yeah, you know, from time to time on the show. And I think Dixie, because of her proximity to TNA and to the people in TNA, not just me, but Hogan and Flair and others um, really wanted it to wanted TNA to be successful. Dixie really wanted to be able to take the show on the road and, and have a much better looking product on television and more energy, all the things that we talked about. Dixie wanted that, but in order for Dixie to get that, she had to go to mom and dad, mom and dad weren't willing to play. So Dixie stepped off the curb, so to speak, and out onto the highway and said, okay, let's do this. But when it came time to funding it long-term, she hit a pothole and ran off the road and ran right into mommy and daddy who didn't really want to do what she wanted to do. So there were, you know, it was an identity crisis. There were two different visions. Dixie had one, the funding partners had another, and they never really connected. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Yeah. It feels like a difference of, uh, you know, not that she didn't want to, the, the, the ability to, to want to, and can to, are sometimes two totally different things. Um, you do a title change around this era where we see sting beat Jeff Hardy for the world title stings 52 years old at this point. Was there any concern about putting the title on a 52 year old performer? We know, you know, that he is an icon in the industry and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, just recently TNA, not TNA, well, Lord, we're gonna get some hate for that. 
Oh man, you're gonna get a phone call. Probably <laughs> AEW uh, had him in his first match back since his WWE run, where uh, he had an injury with that buckle bomb, and I think I read in the Observer he was diagnosed with spinal stenosis, and people thought that was the end of Sting as an in-ring performer. But here in 2021, 61 year old Sting just had a match on pay-per-view. Was there any concern 10 years ago when Sting was 52? Nope. Nope. I, and I think the, the whole idea of age is, I mean, uh, it would be worth a discussion and maybe even a show specifically about this topic. And I think it all started with the Monday night wars, right? I think it all started when Vince McMahon thinking that Hulk Hogan no longer had any value, that Randy Savage no longer had any value, that Roddy Piper no longer had any value, you know, that Ric Flair no longer had any value. That so many of the really established big names were just kind of, it was time to put them out to pasture. You know, you could go all the way back to warrior and Hulk Hogan and WWF when Vince wanted to put the belt on warrior because he felt that Hogan was done. When was that? 1991. Yeah. 92 when Hogan was, I don't know, 37, 38, whatever he was. And once those guys came, once that part of that roster came to WCW and started kicking Vince McMahon's ass on a regular basis, what did Vince do? He started framing and contextualizing. I love that word. Um, aforementioned talent is being too old and washed up and has been's billionaire Ted skits, you know, where, where, you know, Vince made fun of, of the age of a lot of the performers that we were using to beat his ass. Um, and then that, that kind of perpetuated throughout the, peripheral wrestling media and age became a subject. Look, if, if you look at some of the, the biggest hits, and I'm going to pull a couple that are older now because I've kind of analyzed them over the years, um, but they still hold up sons of anarchy on FX, the average age of the cast on sons of anarchy was probably 55 years old. It had the strongest 18 to 49 year old male demos of any show in its time period at that time or close to it. So I think when people who don't know fuck all about television, really, because they've never really done it, start talking about granular aspects of television, like the relative age of the characters compared to the target audience they run themselves into a ditch because they don't know what they're talking about. If you look at history, you know, even though the WWE Vince McMahon in particular was making fun of how old. Stars during the most important shows of the year because they draw the audience doesn't feel the same way about the age of talent as the people who write about it do. Right. And if you look at the other end of it, it takes 
young talent, and I'm talking about guys that are under 30 and under 35 years old, it takes them a good 10 years, five, eight, 10 years to really connect with the audience where they're really viable, consistently uh, high performing characters. It takes a while. You know, the, the, the young talent that everybody talks about grooming. Yes, absolutely. You need to bring that talent up. You need to brush them up against a sting. You need to be Darby Allen getting that rub from sting in AEW, right? That's how you utilize a guy like sting because the audience is still invested in sting. They, AEW just signed big show. I said, what, what the hell? But they did. Why? It was a good calculation. Big show is a name with a ton of freaking equity. Yes. Now, will they use them in the ring? Probably not. Or if they do, it'll be an occasional thing, which is fine. But I think anybody that spends so much time focusing on how old, especially at 52 years old, look, you're a television star. You know, look at Tom Cruise. You know, who's the guy that plays, who's a British cat that plays uh, James Bond, 007? Um, but he's my age, for crying out loud. Um, doesn't matter. The audience digs the character. That's all that matters. And if the character happens to be 52 years old, or in Sting's case today, 62 years old, doesn't matter. The audience still digs it because there's equity there. So, no, I wasn't concerned then, and I think people are overly concerned now. It's something that people in the peripheral wrestling media who don't know fuck all, it's something that they can talk about because it's an opinion. It's a subjective opinion, but they can try to take that subjective opinion and make it sound like it's based in science or I hate to say that based in science. Oh my God. But it's based in fact. It's not based in fact. Are you talking about Daniel Craig? The opposite of that. Did you mean Daniel Craig? Yes. Yeah. 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 Little guy, put him in your pocket, take him for a walk (laughs) around the block. But he's a badass James Bond. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I do think you're onto something with the, uh, maybe this is a Vince McMahon thing, because to your point, when, when warrior beat Hogan in 90, Hogan's only 36. And when he when he leaves Vince, he's only 39. I think he'd turn 40 later that year. So when he comes over to you, he's probably 40 years old. And, uh, we've seen everybody listening right now is waiting for me to quote how old AJ styles is, but he's younger than AJ styles is today. Um, let's keep it going here. The big rating on March 3rd is that sting Hardy match. Um, it's also when you have Bart Scott from the New York jets on the show and Angelina from Jersey shore, she's going to be wrestling. Boy, you guys are just reaching for any sort of celebrity rub you can get in this era, right? That was a Dixie thing. Dixie loves celebrities. She loved them. And I'm not knocking her. I mean, I use celebrities. WWE uses celebrities. AEW is using celebrities. Everybody uses celebrities. So it's not a knock. Um, although it sounded like one. I guess because she was so giddy. She just loved having celebrities around me. And I understand that, you know, from her, from Dixie's perspective, it gave her a level of credibility. Right. The network. Spike TV got excited about it because it gave them something to promote, which is really important to a network. You know, give me something promotable and we'll promote it. If you don't give me something promotable, we can't. Right. So this was promotable for, for the network. Therefore they were excited as well. So not a knock. Um, 
but yeah, it was, it was an attempt to try to get some credibility. Meltzberg, right. Even though the taping was said to be a big success, the April 1st show in Pikeville will only be a house show. The impression I have is there were all kinds of problems due to Pikeville, not being close to a major airport and the cost of tape there being too much. So at this point, all future TV tapings are back in Orlando. They'll likely do another on the road taping in a few months, but nothing is on the books right now. What do you remember about this Pikeville situation? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I say that because I wasn't involved in it. I mean, I didn't book the building. I didn't negotiate with the building. I don't know what the expenses were for the building. I don't know what the issues were, uh, other than, you know, as I talked about earlier, mommy and daddy didn't want to spend any money. That show, by the way, is at the Eastern Kentucky Expo Center. And uh, Kurt Angle would beat Jeff Jarrett in the main event. Mr. Anderson would beat Matt Hardy. Uh, Beer Money would team up to take on Jesse Neal and Shannon Moore, and they would retain their tag titles. Matt Morgan would beat Hernandez. Velvet Sky would beat Tara. Eric Young would beat Robbie E. Boy, in hindsight, dude, you had a ton of talent on this roster. Did you know it? We did have a, I should say, TNA did have a ton of talent on that roster. And that's, you know, that was the part that into the, even to this day, a little bit, it still drives me crazy because it was such a missed opportunity. You know, you put that much great talent, you know, on your roster, you make a commitment to you're halfway there. You're halfway there. You've assembled the talent. You've got a good director in, in, in Keith Mitchell and David Sahadi, and you've got good post-production and Kevin Sullivan, not the wrestler, the director, excuse me, the producer, you know, you've got, you know, an assembly of some pretty good experienced, you know, minds in Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and Kurt Angle. And, you know, I'm not going to throw myself in that category, but there's, you know, there's some people that have kind of been there and done that. So yeah. you're, you're halfway there. It, it's like, you decide, oh, I'm going to pack up the kids. We're going to take a road trip out to Yellowstone National Park, but you only put a half a tank of gas in the car. Why? Why not just drive down to the Dairy Queen? Get everybody a banana split and call it a day. But instead, you get everybody excited about going to Yellowstone National Park, but you're only willing to put a half a tank of gas in the car. If you were a little kid in the back of that Chevy, and you think you're going to Yellowstone, you're going to see Yogi Bear. Remember Yogi Bear? Probably not. You're sure. too young for Yogi no, Bear. No, I know but. Yogi. <laughs> but you're going to go see Yogi Bear, and you're going to have a picnic in the park, and he's going to try to steal your basket. It's going to be fun. And then you find out that you ran out of gas halfway there, or not even halfway there. You're just out of gas. You're sitting on the side of the road, sweating like a pig in July, waiting for a tow truck because you didn't want to put the gas in the tank. That would piss me off. Even if I was nine. Yeah. He's smarter than the average bear. Boo boo. Come on. I know all that. (laughs) Smarter than the average bear. (laughs) I, um, I got a sidebar about all that. Let's come back to it another time. Let's talk about your old man. The honky talk man. He's back in the news. Dave Meltzer were right. Honky talk man claimed that in 2010, Jeff Jarrett approached him regarding a merchandise deal and said he was going to send him a contract. He never got said contract. So honky talk man signed with Mattel and WWE. He said, even though Eric Bischoff publicly insulted him, Hogan was caught, was calling him for the Hogan and friends tour, which was said to be a series of Q and a shows where Hogan and his friends would sign autographs and answer wrestling questions. He claimed himself and Jimmy Hart set up the shows. 
And he said, after he and Bubba the love sponge went back and forth, Hogan kicked him off the tour after the first show, boy, any excuse to talk about the honky tonk man here on 83 weeks, I'll jump at, do you remember any of this? Not a bit, not a bit. I'm not even sure the tour ever happened. Maybe it did. I was unaware of it. I certainly wasn't a part of it, nor would I have wanted to be a part of that car crash, but, um, now I wasn't involved. So I, I, I don't know anything about it. You know more about it than I do. I really assume that the only reason Jeff, I should say the only reason the primary reason Jeff Jarrett would have been looking to do something with honky tongue, man, is the guitar deal, right? I mean, they were both synonymous for their guitars and as silly as it sounds in hindsight, TNA was making some money selling those Jeff Jarrett guitars once upon a time. Were they not? Oh, I, I don't know. I guess, <laughs> you know, when you say making money, let's put it into context. Okay. Are we making, are we making a hundred dollars a night compared to $40 a night in t-shirt sales? Then that seems like a lot of money. And I guess relatively speaking with air quotes around relatively, I guess that's good. It's, it, it, it's over a hundred percent increase, right? It, it was a hundred dollars over $40. Yay. We're rocking. Um, but I don't think it was a significant amount of money or a significant enough amount of money to actually move anybody's needle. I think I'm just i uh, I'm a Don West mark and I knew it gave Don something else to sell. Hey, give me something else to sell you. You know, you didn't, you couldn't stuff it in a brown paper bag and sell it for 10 bucks. You know, you had to have a bigger bag, but yeah, it was something else to sell. I just think the whole <laughs> guitar thing. And, and yeah, I was, I hated it when, when Jeff used it, it was tired. It was old. It was nonsensical, but that was me. And I understand. And I accept that it's a subjective opinion based on taste. And it didn't, it didn't, it didn't scratch my itch. I want to give a heads up, you know, on all of my commercials for SaveWithConrad.com, you hear me say you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. I say that because I want you to understand we're going to work with you right now, even if you don't qualify right now. You see, we don't believe in no at First Family Mortgage. We believe in not yet. But don't take my word on that. Check out this five-star review from Nathan in Hobart, Indiana. He says the level of personal service I received was fantastic. When I first contacted your office, I was not ready to get the best rate. Francis made a point to check with me every few months, just like she said she would during our initial call. Finally, my wife and I were ready and the process was smooth sailing after that. Thank you all so much for saving us $300 a month and lowering our interest rate from 4.65 to 3.125. Most of all, thank you for being nice people. Everyone we dealt with was great. The idea is even if your circumstance isn't right just yet, we're going to work with you and get you some advice on how to increase your credit score, increase your buying power, just get you on the right path to home ownership. We're not going to treat you like the big banks do, like you're just another number. This is First Family Mortgage, and you're our podcast family, and we want to help you save some cash and get on the right track for what your short-term goals are and your long-term goals. If you're looking to save money each and every month, we can help at savewithconrad.com. If you're looking to consolidate all of your debt and get it down into one monthly payment and kiss those high interest rate credit cards goodbye forever, we can help you at savewithconrad.com. If you're looking to pay your house off faster, we can do it at savewithconrad.com. Or maybe you're just looking to buy your first home and you're not exactly sure where to start. You start at savewithconrad.com. 
NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. No matter your circumstance, savewithconrad.com can help you get a plan. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. Now's as good a time of any to mention that uh, some of our family members over at adfreeshows.com sent you a guitar autographed by Jeff Jarrett and Honky Talk Man, and you and I are yes. going to do something fun with that here in Huntsville next time you're this way, right? Well, I thought, well, I was hoping to bring it back with me. And when I was down in Huntsville, I, I, I had to peel out of town so quickly. Cause I heard there were police looking for none. <laughs> I, I didn't break any laws while I was in Huntsville. Um, but, uh, yeah, we left and, and unfortunately left without it, but yeah, I'd like to hang it up in my office. Um, have it on the wall. This isn't my office, by the way, this is a screenshot of my living room. Um, someday I'm going to actually have an office that I can put stuff on the wall on right now. It just looks like I'm in a, a log cabin in the middle of the woods. So well, you, it's not very are. appealing. It doesn't look yeah, like it's a cool are. bar. It's a 120 year old bar. You want to know a little story about this bar? Maybe but, I've told you before you, you know. tell me about the bar. It doesn't look like you're in a log cabin in the middle of the woods. You are in a log cabin in the middle of the woods. Well, I actually am. It doesn't <laughs> look like it. It doesn't look like it because of technology. But I'm well. There's no woods around me, but I'm in the middle of the mountains. Yeah. Um, so yeah. But if you saw the room that I'm really in, you would go, "Ooh, yeah, that's not good TV." So I I, I use technology, and I, what I did is I took a picture of the bar that's in my house, um, and I used that as my backdrop. But that bar, I'll tell you a little story about that bar because I love history. This has nothing to do with TNA or wrestling, but eh, bear with me. When Laura and I first came to Wyoming together, now I had been here, I came here in 70 or 79, but 77 by myself. I was 22 at the time. But when I first brought Lori here, we walked into this, they call it the Cody Rodeo Company because they have a big rodeo here every night during the summer. You know, it's like a tourist shop, right? They have hats, you know, cowboy hats and all kinds of rodeo cowboy stuff. And in the back of this big store was this bar that you're looking at on screen. And the bar was used as a Stetson hat display. So I walked into the bar. Now here, first thing I got to tell you this is at that time, I had maybe $600 in my checking account. This was while I was working for w, uh, AWA. So I, I mean, literally I had to beg, borrow and steal enough money to take my wife and my kids at that time on their first kind of road trip. So we had about 600 bucks in our name. We had almost nothing in our checking account. We were no credit cards. We were flat ass broke on the verge of bankruptcy. So we walked into the store and we went, wow, look at that bar. And Lori says, man, I wonder if it's for sale. I said, Lori, everything you see is for sale. They might not have a price tag on it, but I guarantee you they're willing to sell it. So I went up to the owner. I said, how much do you want for that bar? I want to buy it. He gave me a number. It's like, 30 grand or 40 grand or something like that, which to me, it could have been 300,000 or 400,000 at that point. So I said, well, look, I want to buy that bar. I had no money. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write you a $500 check that I figured I could cover by the time I got home. And I just want you to hold that bar for me. You can use it in your store. Keep using it. You don't have to move it. I'm not going to take possession of it. And I'm going to make payments on it. Kind of like a contract for deed, yeah. <laughs> if you will, with a balloon payment at the end. And I said, I'll just keep making payments on it every month until I can afford to write you a check. And the guy said, sure, go ahead. I got nothing to lose. 
So we did that. We didn't even own property at the time. We didn't, we had no plans to, it was seven years later when we bought property and built a house, but we had a bar and fast forward, built our house, things turned around, obviously built a house, but we designed our house around that bar. Wow. We literally had the architect design the house in order to fit that bar as kind of the focal point in the centerpiece of the house. Cool. Now we're now a couple of years later, we're sitting here and over the 4th of July with my family and some really close friends, we're sitting around that bar having a beverage or two. And I start doing some math in my head. I'm thinking, no, oh, wait a minute. This bar is over a hundred years old. The battle of the little big horn. I'm doing the math there and I'm going, whoa. And by the way, this bar came out of a saloon in a little town called Hardin, Montana. Hardin, Montana is right outside of the Crow Indian Reservation where the Little Bighorn kind of took place. So I started doing the math and I realized that there were probably Native Americans that were part of the Little Bighorn as well as Calvary, ex-Calvary and, and soldiers that were a part of that battle that probably told stories and shared beers over that bar. Isn't that fascinating, Conrad? That's awesome. Have we just lost 90% of our audience? Well, I've always loved the bar. I saw a picture of the bar many years ago and uh, me and you've talked about it a little bit, but we've never shared that whole story on the show here. And, uh, if you're watching on adfreeshows.com, you can see the bar we're talking about and we got to like film some video with you at that bar. We need to do that soon. I've got some, but it's not appropriate for adfreeshows.com. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. This is B would be hot. Let's talk about <laughs> what well, she probably was. Uh, let's talk about Jimmy Hart. He's working backstage, helping produce the TV, the TV shows. And he's uh, actually shown on camera a few weeks back when Kurt Angle went to the production truck and told him to play his music before coming out. But Meltzer would write, he left the promotion a few weeks ago. He's back with WWE and his build is being part of fan access. What's up with this? Is this, uh, I mean, obviously Jimmy is great at any convention. I see why Vince would want him to be a part of that, but I thought him and Hulkster were sort of a package deal. Do you remember this sort of parting of the ways here? I do. Uh, Jimmy was frustrated. I think probably with me, um, and me, I was a big part of it, not the sole reason for it, but I, I firmly believed that. I did not want to see Jimmy Hart on TV. Right. Uh, we had seen so much of Jimmy Hart on television for so long. You know, we make jokes. I make jokes. I should say I'll take responsibility for it. You know, Jimmy, have you ever watched a Jimmy Hart interview? If you see Hulk Hogan or anybody that, you know, Jimmy's managing, Jimmy's always, you know, making sure he's got his face in the camera. And it just, it's too much. It, there was a point in time in WCW where Jimmy Hart would, you know, you'd see him on camera, you know, four times, five times throughout a two hour show because he's managing two or three or four different people. It's like, fuck enough, enough. And, and I felt like Jimmy's character, you know, while it worked in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, um, by 1995, 1996 in WCW, I had seen so much of Jimmy Hart in the character no longer fit the times that I just didn't want to see it anymore. And I think Jimmy and I'm, you know, I don't know this, Jimmy and I never spoke about Jimmy's too classy of a cat to ever bitch about anything like this, but 
he was just frustrated. He didn't feel like he was being utilized. He was, he wanted to be more involved and he felt like he was being put in a little shoebox and stuck over in a corner. So he moved on and he went back to WWE. It's sad to see you come between Hulkster and his, his pal, Jimmy like that. Damn you, Aaron. I'm such a home wrecker. Aren't I? God. Uh, Meltzer would also say the show opened with Dixie Carter out, but Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan announced they had won the court case and were in control of TNA and had Carter kicked out of the building. Typical TNA to create a storyline where Carter signs away power to Bischoff while clearly being swerved, announced the court case in Dallas, the judge being a personal friend of the Carter family, and then the baby face in the scenario still loses. Although for the angle, she wouldn't win in court this early fortune tried to save Carter, but security stopped them. The segment didn't work out as expected. And the crowd cheered Hogan over Carter. That seems to me like an obvious thing from the outside looking in. I mean, Dixie Carter may be positioned as the baby face, but me, the longtime wrestling fan, I don't know. I can trust Dixie Carter, but I love Hulk Hogan. So I'm going to cheer whatever he does in hindsight. Is this a silly angle? I still like it. It's, I don't know. Yes. Fundamentally, it was a mistake. If the intent was to get Dixie over as a baby face and get sympathy on her, which really was the intent, um, failed. <clears throat> Bad idea. Didn't work because of what you just said. Yeah. You know, the, uh, Hogan had too much equity. God, he was old. He had had a bunch of back surgeries. What was he? 48. What was this? 10 years ago? No, God, it was 10 years ago. He was 56 or 57. Oh my God. It's a wonder he could still breathe, (laughs) but, but he still had so much equity, you know, with the audience that it kind of backfired. Let's uh, fair criticism. Fair criticism. Is this. Was this all done just to keep Dixie on TV? Uh, was was she adamant about being on TV? Is this no? She, well, yeah. adamant in an obvious way? No. Determined in a very nuanced, subtle, and sophisticated manner? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, that really wasn't. It, it wasn't done for Dixie. It was done for story. It was done to position Hogan to a lesser degree myself. It was done to create a power struggle. It was done to create story. Um, it wasn't done to put Dixie on TV. That would be unfair to say. The uh, wedding segment is uh, another piece of the program here. Jeff and Karen Angle, I guess, uh, reality imitating art or art imitating reality, I guess in this case, right? Because they actually got married in 2010, but boy, this was a story and a half. We could probably do a whole episode or maybe multiple episodes about this one day, huh? We could, but, and we'll talk about this when we get to the show. Um, but the, there was a segment, you know, backstage with Jeff and Karen and the kids while they were celebrating their honeymoon at universal. It was so good. I, I was, I got up at four 30 this morning to review this show and to start sucking down coffee so that I would be appropriately energized and caffeinated. Um, and I was laughing like an idiot 
like about 6.40 this morning downstairs. You know, I was trying to be quiet because Mrs. B was still asleep. Dog didn't even want to wake up yet. And I'm down there laughing like a jackass at this this particular backstage. Not laughing because it was bad, laughing because it was so well done. And by the way, Karen Angle, I'm saying it right now, or Karen Jarrett in this case. Karen Jarrett, the most underrated performer probably in the last 15 years. I mean, she had the chops. She could pull off almost anything. She was a natural. It is a sin against the television universe that Karen Jarrett has not had over the years a more significant and consistent role on television because she leaves most performers in the dust. And you'll see why when you watch this. Pardon the interruption, but I wanted to tell you real quickly about two of the best ways to support 83 Weeks. One is to pick up a shirt from ericbischoff.com. Another is to grab a gimmick from boxagimmicks.com. It's the official store of 83 Weeks. Not only does this support the show financially, but you get to show off your fandom to others, helping spread the word about one of the best podcasts around. So check out ericbischoff.com and boxagimmicks.com. And thank you for listening to 83 Weeks. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Let's, uh, let's talk about a major feather in the cap. Meltzer would say the first impact show done at a major arena that aired on March 3rd may have been a potential game changer. The move was a huge positive for the look of the show. The setting made the talent look like bigger stars and the promotion looked more major league. The big rating was drawn by the fact that they had built up the episode for weeks to the point of non-existent promotion for the pay-per-view just as impact did near record highs. I expect the pay-per-view to do near record lows, but they are considering victory road as almost a throwaway and lockdown as being the big show to peak for lot to unpack there. You know, listen, in a typical wrestling company methodology, you would think the, the TV show helps sell the pay-per-views. They are the infomercial to go to the arena and buy live tickets for shows. And of course, sell pay-per-views we know in WCW. Well, that's different. This is now a television company that has a wrestling show and they just happen to have pay-per-view, but the TV show is sort of the primary thing. I think most people would think in this TNA era, well, you're using the TV show to try to build to the pay-per-view and Meltzer thinks. Maybe we got that a little backwards here. The result is a great show, but was it at the sake of the pay-per-view in your opinion? No, but again, it's Dave Meltzer, someone who has never spent five minutes in the wrestling industry, has never produced 30 seconds worth of television in his entire life, um, analyzing and trying to position himself as an authority on how to build a wrestling company. Clearly, he doesn't have a clue. In any company, you television comes first. Television has to come first. You have to build an audience. You know, it's funny, the, 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 the positive things that they've said about the television taping, it felt like a major promotion. The stars felt like bigger stars. All the things that were, by the way, the intent and, and, and the logic for taking the show on the road, as I discussed earlier, right? 
That's how you build bigger pay-per-views by building bigger stars and making your television show feel so much so important. You can't build two things. You can't focus on two things simultaneously. And you certainly don't want to put promotion. If you've got five minutes, whatever it may be, if you've got five minutes of time to promote something, are you going to split that? When you don't have a good television show, when you're not really drawing the audience you really need to support a long-term pay-per-view strategy over the course of one year, three years, five years, 10 years, right? You've got to build that foundation by building the audience and you build the audience by making a more successful television show. So if you have a finite amount of promotional time, how are you going to use it? Chasing a dollar, hoping that that pay-per-view is going to make 20% more than you did last last month? Or are you going to invest it in the television product? I submit, and I I did back 10 years ago, I did in 1993, 1992, when I rebuilt WCW to be the largest television wrestling company in the world by doing the exact same thing. Put your resources where you need them the most. The resources weren't needed in pay-per-view. Pay-per-view will follow the success and the trajectory of the television product. But if you follow the Dave Meltzer school of non-logic, you would forego that, you know, because probably not recognizing that you have a finite amount of time or attention span that you can get people to focus on any one thing in the Dave Meltzer school of logic you would split that and build for the pay-per-view. And I submit that that's exactly the opposite of what you should do. What you should do is build your foundation. Your foundation is your television show. Build your audience, grow your audience. If you don't have an audience that you can depend on week in and week out, and you're not growing that audience week in and week out, you're never you're chasing a pay-per-view unicorn. It's never going to happen for you. You may pop one here or there, but you're never going to build a long-term business without a strong foundation. And the strategy was to build the television show by taking it on the road. And in Dave's own words, making the talent feel like they're more important, like they're bigger stars, making the event feel more important, making the television audience more excited about said television program. That's how eventually you build a pay-per-view model. You don't do both simultaneously. It's like trying to roof a house and dig the foundation at the same time. It doesn't fucking work. It'll all collapse on you and you'll kill the guys digging the foundation. And the guys up on the roof pounding shingles will fall into the dirt. It doesn't freaking work, Dave. You're a moron. You're a goof. Oh. oh, my God. You can't even structure a sentence. How the hell do you think anybody thinks you know anything about running a wrestling promotion? You fuck. Sorry. Oh, man, you're mean today, but sometimes you at least make it funny. And ending with you fuck made me laugh. But the rest of that, I was kind of mean, Eric. Because it was true. Isn't that, isn't that the part that stings the most when something is accurate and true is when it hurts the most and feels most mean. It is not my intention to be mean. It's my intention to enlighten this audience, the most sophisticated wrestling audience. I think anywhere our audience knows more about the business of the wrestling business by virtue of their proximity to this podcast, then Dave Meltzer will figure out if he lived an additional lifetime. 
I think one day I could get you guys together. Y'all would get along. He's a nice guy. Brother, I've got a lot of confidence in you and you've opened my eyes to a lot of things, but I think you're <laughs> stepping into some shit you know nothing about. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, an interview that you did that's brought up in the Observer. Eric Bischoff, when asked about the number of pay-per-views TNA does, said, quote, definitely need to drop the number of PPVs. The business isn't hot enough to sustain the current number and doing them hurts the long-term viability of the category. Worked in the 90s, not now. Just a personal opinion. It will take balls and vision to change the model. And Meltzer would say, I don't disagree. The viability of pay-per-view is undermined the most by having the focus of the company to build one big TV show per month. Pay-per-view has to be the big show or it's not going to work. If they believe they can do enough business on pay-per-view and it's not worth as much as pushing for one big TV number, then pay-per-view should not be done or very limited. If a pay-per-view is done, the idea of not promoting the lineup until Thursday before the Sunday show, that's not going to work either. It has been promoted for at least three weeks uh, or it has to be promoted for at least three weeks. So listen, I think this has proven out to be the case. We know in wrestling pay-per-views on a monthly basis are effectively dead. I know that impact still does them. And, uh, I don't think that it's still a needle mover. But AEW, impact, you mean the, the current impact still does pay-per-views. They can't even draw over 200,000 people regularly to a television show. How in the world do they think they're going to make any money on a pay-per-view? Well, they do make 200,000 people. I could do that with a YouTube. We get Mrs. B and I up at that bar. I'll show you <laughs> 200,000 people on YouTube. <laughs> the, uh, that's a great line that will be quoted. Um, the, the whole pay-per-view model though. I mean, the WWE effectively blew that up when they brought out the network and AEW has done fairly well for themselves, certainly compared to what TNA was doing, even in this era on pay-per-view, but they're not doing it every month. They're smarter than that. Now they do have big shows. You know, we saw their, their sort of go home dynamite before the most recent pay-per-view. That was a big show. You had Shaq on it. You had Tully back in there. You saw some other familiar faces, but still it's, um, it's changed. And I think you sort of called the shot a decade ago here and Meltzer agreed with you. Um, yeah, I am a visionary and I, it's like, I kind of live in the future, you know, <laughs> when, when you, when you kind of get to know me and you hang around me, a lot of the stuff I say happens 10 years after the fact. So it's just amazing. It's consistent too. It's really fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean the mod look, the mod kidding aside, cause I am kind of joking kind of, um, the model has changed. I like what AEW is doing. And again, you look at what AEW is doing. Now, I don't study their business model. I don't follow them, you know, as closely as some may, but they're doing the right thing. What are they doing? They're building their television property. They're not focusing on pay-per-views. They're not splitting the focus. They're not splitting their resources. They're building a loyal audience. And when the time comes, when the audience is significant enough and they're able to grow that audience, um, there will come a time when more pay-per-views will make more sense. Right now, they don't. Melissa would also say that you had an appearance on the Monday Night Mayhem podcast, which uh, unfortunately was also probably ahead of its time. And they asked about the uh, Bret Hart, Hulk Hogan Twitter war that was happening at the time. And you said you believe Bret needed someone to hate in order to feel significant. Noting he never had a bad word with Brett when they worked together. 
He said for years, Brett hated Vince McMahon, Shawn Michaels, and triple H and was grateful to Hogan and Bischoff. He said when Brett returned to WWE and made up with McMahon and Michaels, he just started hating Hogan and Bischoff. Bischoff said he still likes Brett and respects him as a person, but he feels there's a dark hole in his soul that he has to fill up with hate in order to feel good about himself. Meltzer would say, I wouldn't be surprised if Hart responds to this, but as someone who has discussed all, uh, all parties with Hart at various times, I think that's a bullshit amateur psychologist at work. I don't know that Hart <laughs> hates Bischoff so much as he hates what Bischoff did to the industry. And we've talked a lot about Bret Hart on your fires back episodes over on adfreeshows.com where Brett's had a lot to say about you over the years. If you'd like to see what Brett has to, or, or, or what Brett said, or what Eric said back, it's at adfreeshows.com. But I never really put two and two together. Do you think Brett sort of changed the course of his hate or, or channeled it in a different direction when he did make amends with the WWE? Of course he did. Of course he did. He wanted to kill Vince McMahon when I, when, when I started working, he wanted to, he, he, he hated Shawn Michaels. He hated Ric Flair. He hated everybody in WWE. Uh, probably not everybody, but a lot of people. He was miserable. Vince McMahon was the antichrist until he got to go into the hall of fame. Right. And then it's time to kiss and make up. And then Eric was the antichrist and Hogan was the antichrist. It's so obvious. And it's, you know, I and look to this day, I do respect Brett, many aspects of Brett Hart as a performer. I still think in the ring today, I've said this before, I'm not going to change my opinion. Nothing will change my opinion. No one will change my opinion. Brett Hart, in my opinion, is one of the best technical performers in his generation. Not the biggest star. You know, his drawing power in WWE is well-documented by anybody who wants to do the research in an objective way. He was not a main event draw in WWE. That's it. That's a fact. It's not my fault. I wasn't there. I didn't book him. It just didn't work. He was a world. He, he was the champion. He was the face of the company. And he was the least successful world heavyweight champion, or at least one of, in WWE history, which is a long freaking history. So it is what it is. But Bret Hart is that guy that has to have somebody to hate in order to have something to talk about. That's it. If he has to do an interview, he's got to find somebody to pick on, somebody to hate, somebody to blame. What did Eric Bischoff do to the, according to Dave, that changed the course of the business? Oh, I don't know. Built it up to a level that it's had never been before. And by the way, still isn't and hasn't been since. What did I do to change the course of the business? Created a live two-hour format that nobody else had ever done every week. Provided the audience with pay-per-view level you know, matches each and every week or pay-per-view level cards each and every week on free TV. That grew the business to a level that nobody had ever seen before or has seen since. I don't know. Seems like kind of a good track record to me. What has Bret Hart done? More importantly, what has Dave Meltzer done? Okay. That's enough of that. Let's talk about micro championship wrestling. Meltzer. We're right. Come on. Do you do? (laughs) (laughs) We're getting to the show after this note, I promise, but it's in, Uh, it's in the observer that Hulk Hogan is involved with Eric Bischoff's micro championship wrestling and that they did a taping in Tampa on March 9th quote. Hogan was filming footage, both at the show and away from the show. That was a great deal. He cut if he could appear for other wrestling groups while under a TNA contract, then again, it's also possible. They don't really consider it competition, 
but he no doubt kept the, kept the open rights so he could appear on reality shows. And this is in fact listed as a reality show. I guess it's fair to say that, uh, TNA didn't see this as a little competition. Not at all. And it shouldn't, I mean, anybody that saw it as competition needed to be as far away from a television decision as they possibly could get. Uh, you know, like the micro championship wrestling, and by the way, let me give you a little background on how that actually came about. Um, at the time, my then business partner, Jason Hervey and I were pretty successful and we're knocking out a lot. We were creating from scratch, um, pitching to networks and then producing said projects, um, for, True TV, A&E, MTV, VH1, NBC, CMT, uh, Spike. Oh, God. Probably, if I didn't say True TV, I should have. Um, half a dozen or more, well, more, probably eight or ten different networks. And we were rolling in a good way, not in a bad way. Um, and it Hulk called me because, John, you remember Johnny Green? Yeah. We've talked about Johnny Green in the past. Uh, he had wrestled in WCW on occasion. I think he had even stepped foot in a WWE ring once or twice. But Johnny Green was amongst the plethora of wrestling people that lived down in Florida. And Johnny Green had this promotion of um, little people, because I don't think I'm supposed to call them midgets. But <clears throat> these little people had this wrestling tour that they would do in nightclubs and bars and outdoor events and biker events and all kinds of things. And it was a really cool event. It was entertaining as hell. And the, the talent, you know, was really, they were gifted performers. Uh, were they little people? Yes. Were they gifted performers and committed? Absolutely. So Hogan called me and said, Hey, I know you and Jason are kind of rocking the world, you know, in unscripted television. I got this guy. Do you want to take a look at what he's doing? I said, sure. So I looked at some videotape <clears throat> and I think I went to an event and said, man, this, this could be a show. So we called over to the, the people that we were doing business, the network executives at true TV and um, said, Hey, we got this idea. And I, you know, we laid it out on paper and I went in and pitched it and they said, yeah, we'd like to do that. So we did. And we shot a series with Johnny Green and Micro Championship Wrestling. But it had nothing to do with the wrestling business model. It had everything to do with an unscripted television show. You're not supposed to say, I'm going to say this because I don't think I can say that and then say that word. Well, I don't think that they care. You know, I mean, come on. You know, look, if I'm going to get <laughs> burned at the cross for using the term midget, while I'm referring to little people who also referred to themselves as midgets, oh, then all right, here I go. I screwed up. Let me apologize in advance for anybody that I have offended. My intention was not to demean. My intention was not to cast an aspersion or to disrespect anybody. It was a term of endearment. If you're not endeared, I'm sorry. Let's talk about the show victory road, March 13th, 2011, which is why we're covering it today. You've got Kurt angle on the promo for the poster, but he's not on the pay-per-view. Uh, I just assume this is still the era where these pay-per-view posters and marketing and such to get to the networks and, uh, pay-per-view distributors. This is done well in advance, right? Done well in advance. 
Yeah. I, I don't know what the issue was with Kurt, if there was an injury, because, you know, Kurt was busted up a long time before he got to TNA. So right. my guess is it was probably, you know, because Kurt, unless Kurt was in a casket, he was going to make a show. So I would imagine there was a pretty substantial injury involved. The pay-per-view gets an estimated 17,000 buys, which is a slight Ooh. increase from the previous month of 15.5. And the last year's victory road did between eight and 15,000. So even though it's not a huge jump, it is a jump, but seven doubled it more than doubled it in 12 months. Oh my God. We were on the right track. <laughs> 17,000 buys, dude. There's, there's a lot no, of, great- but we doubled what we did the year before. Come on. We quit like, talking percentages. Like if, if you go to Tesla today, if you sat down with Elon Musk and said, Elon, buddy, come here. I know a little bit about the mortgage business. And I know a little bit about the car business. Cause I got a garage full of some badass ones, <laughs> <laughs> but Elon that's not important. What is important is I have a way to double your business in 12 months. Would you not be on the board of directors? Of course. All right. I rest my case. Let's, uh, let's talk about where we are creatively. The wrestling observer readers hated the show. They got three thumbs up, 10 in the middle, 51 thumbs down overwhelmingly thumbs down before we get into the show thumbs up thumbs down thumbs in the middle i would give it a thumbs in the middle all the way up until the main event and then i would have just been disgusted are the big wrestling companies leaving you without that extreme fix if so adfreeshows.com is the place to be Last week, we had another event with the guys from the ad-free exclusive show that was extreme with Blue Meanie and Joel Gertner. Our members got to sit with two ECW mainstays for more than just a two-minute hello, asking them questions about their monthly podcast. Take a listen as Blue Meanie shares more insight on the infamous mass transit situation. So this this kid, uh, Mastranda, shows up and says he's a student of, of Killer Kowalski and he trained Killer Kowalski. This is the one show Killer didn't show up at. And well, if Killer, no reason to believe that he's lying though, because this happened all the time. Right, right. Oh yeah, Killer would show up with the students and stuff like that. So the one time Killer Kowalski doesn't show up, this kid shows up and goes, "Hey, I was trained by Killer Kowalski. If Killer Kowalski had been there, he could have said, oh, this is bullshit,' you know, and." No, things could have been averted. And the crisis was not averted. And Blue Meanie goes on to tell you why. So become a part of the family now. Enjoy this and so many other exclusive shows and events, including the recent Jim Crockett interview, as well as Title Chase. The recent episode highlights the WWF Tag Team Championship belt owned by Conrad himself. So make the decision to sign up today and join the fastest growing wrestling community over at adfreeshows.com. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Talk to me about pay-per-view day. Like, what was a typical day in the life of Eric Bischoff on a TNA pay-per-view day? Not this one in particular, just on average. 
It was no different than a day in the life of Eric Bischoff at a television taping. It was show up at the Universal Studios lot, probably around nine or 10 in the morning. Um, start your production meeting. If we'd get there at nine, we'd start the production meeting at 10, usually. Uh, production meeting would take about two hours where you're just kind of reviewing the format for the show, addressing any changes, better ideas, injuries, arrests, car accidents, whatever happens to come up in the day of life, day in the life of, of your performers. Um, so you'd make whatever changes you needed to make to the format accordingly. Uh, probably from 12 to one, you'd slam down some catering. Universal Studios catering was not that good. And I'm an expert on catering, as you know. <laughs> I take great pride. It's a great callback. Maybe, maybe there's a reality show in my future where I travel all over the world going to television and movie sets, and I'm doing a, a, a show about the quality of the catering and interviewing the people in the catering um, department. That would be a good show. Um, but no, the catering there was horseshit. So yeah, from about 12 to one, you'd pound down whatever slop was available. That's cold, but true. Um, and then usually about eh, one, one you'd start cutting your pre-tapes, you know, doing your backstage promos, rehearsing talent would be in the ring, rehearsing agents would be going back and forth. You know, doing what agents do, trying to make sure the match came off the way it was intended to come off and didn't kind of evolve into something completely different once the wrestling talent got a hold of it. <clears throat> because oftentimes, <clears throat> and this is not a knock, but it's a reality, you know, you give, you go to a wrestler, you know, so you got a team of writers, right? They lay out this script, <clears throat> they lay out this story. Ugh, even that's hard to say. They lay out a plan of sorts of what the story is going to be. And it kind of makes sense on paper. And then <clears throat> it comes time to execute said story in the ring, the action part of the story, not the dialogue, not the narrative, not the backstage, but what goes on inside of the ring. Well, you get a couple of wrestlers in the ring with an agent and they start getting creative and having fun. And they take the initial idea that was kind of on paper in a bullet point format with, the, with an outcome that we all deemed appropriate for that particular story. Well, you give that to the wrestling talent. And throughout the course of the day, the match that manifests, you know, between the two talents and sometimes the agent has nothing at all to do with the story as it was laid out on paper. So a good agent will, <clears throat> a good agent will always endeavor to make sure that the execution in the ring is consistent with the story that's, and sometimes talent isn't aware of it. They don't know that there's a two week or three week or four week story necessarily. So they're, they're coming up with the best match they can have, but it's not always consistent with the story that we need. So a good part of the day is managing those two processes creative process behind the scenes and the creative process within the ring itself that eats up a good part of the day along with, as I said, interviews, backstage stuff. If there's a, you know, if there's a pull apart backstage, the more complicated it gets, the earlier you have to start it. Hopefully if the show goes live at eight, 
in the in 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 the case of a pay-per-view in Eastern, you hopefully have all of that business wrapped up by six, six thirty at the latest, so that you can get ready to produce a show. That would be a typical day. Oh, and I left out the best part. After the show's over, we would go over to the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. There you go. Over at Universal Studios and consume copious amounts of expensive as fuck wine. Thanks to one Dixie Carter. Expensive as fuck wine. What are we talking? hundred dollar bottles, $500 bottles. Oh, it depends on the night. Oh, wow. Okay. Dixie loved her wine. She just didn't love wine. She wouldn't sit down with a bottle of Mogan David or Boone's farm. Like you or I would have done sure. as we were kids. Uh, uh-uh. It's like stuff. I don't even know how to pronounce. And it's good. It's really good. But she did love her wine. Let's get to the show. Match number one is Tommy Dreamer beating uh, Bully Ray in 10 minutes and 44 seconds. It was announced right before that it was going to be a false count anywhere match, which also means it's a no DQ. And Bully Ray does a promo bringing up breaking Tommy Dreamer's wife's neck, which was a well known ECW angle where the uh, Dudley boys broke Beulah McGillicuddy's neck with the 3D. After nailing Dreamer with a kendo stick shot, Ray said to Devon, this is for you. Terrence and Terrell, Devon's sons came out, wanted a neck brace from last month's pay-per-view show. With Ray distracted by the kids, Devon sneaks in the ring and Devon and Dreamer do the 3D on Bubba through a table and Dreamer gets the pin. Meltzer would say very good finish and apropos since the feud started with the machine guns kicking out of a 3D and Bully blamed it on Devon being weak. Then Devon... Ended up doing the move on Ray and he couldn't kick out. I like that. It's a well-written story, you know, from how we got here to where we are now. Uh, this worked for me, but Meltzer didn't really love the action star and a half. You probably didn't dig the action too. I know you don't like gimmick matches, but the story for this, this seems like it's your deal all day. Story was fine. The execution was probably, let me put it this way. This is my note. I doubt this is on either bullies or Tommy dreamers highlight reel, right? The match was horrible. The execution was horrible. And I love bullies. One of my closest friends in the wrestling business. He, I, there's very few people I have more respect for than bully, but I think if bully and Tommy and I, and you sat down and watched this, and I think they'd both be a little embarrassed just because of the execution. Let me put it this way. The highlight of this particular match, and I encourage people to go back and watch this on the Impact Plus app. If you have an iPad, go watch it. But the highlight of this particular match was Bully dropping an elbow on a sex doll. That was it for me. Didn't get any better than that. That was the best part of the whole match. Has that sex doll ever made an appearance at your bar? No, you don't need a doll when you got the real thing. <laughs> Next up, we've got dolls Cer- are for losers, brother, brother, <laughs> uh, Sarita and Rosita won the knockout tag team championships from Angelina love and winter in four fifty six. Sarita does an interview in both English and Spanish vows to win it for Mexico. Meltzer would say dead crowd, not much of a match. Highlight was Rosita doing a splash off Sarita's shoulders that missed and looked ridiculous because her opponent had moved way too early and she still jumped, but yet it happened twice. Then for the finish, Rosita brings in a belt shot, goes to hit winner. She rears back, waits, 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 waits. 
Velvet Velvet Sky was apparently very slow because it was painful how she had to wait for Sky to show up and take the belt away. Winter used a rolling reverse cradle on Rosita, but Sarita turned the pile dry, turned the pile over with Rosita on top, getting the pin. And it all looked ridiculous because winter wasn't worn down. And Rosita is half her size trying to hold her down for three Meltzer hated every bit of it and gave it a dud. They tried hard, but that's probably as complimentary as you can be here. What'd you think? It's not as complimentary as I could be. Watch this. First of all, I think winter was, and probably still is in many respects, one of the sexiest women in wrestling. And I'm not talking about in some artificial plastic surgery experiment way. I'm talking about in a natural, she could walk through a building in army fatigues. And she would draw the eye of every healthy male within a mile. She's just a classy, by the way, super classy, super sexy, and very talented woman. Now, that being said, the wrestling execution, eh, not so much. And I understand why Dave felt the way he felt. But I want to talk, but but let's not just criticize for the sake of criticizing because it's fun to pick on people who aren't there to defend themselves because Dave does that a lot. People that people that critique wrestling or anything else, they get their they get their nut, you know, tearing down other people. So let's talk about the positives. First of all, this is, you know, this is the way I look at stuff, you know, when I analyze things, Um, not so much on a personal agenda kind of way, but just break it down for what it was and is. Go back and look if you can, uh, or are inclined to go back and look at Sarita's opening promo. When I watched it, because she opens up in English, and it was hard to listen to. It was unnatural. It was forced. There was very little emotion and a lot of memorization going on, which indicates to me just lack of experience. That's all. It's not lack of talent. It's not a potential talent. It's just lack of experience and comfort and security. So she struggled, in my opinion, through that interview until she hit Spanish. She hit the Hispanic button and she was on fire. Her promo was as good. I couldn't understand it. Not going to lie. But in terms of the delivery and the passion and the emotion, God forbid anybody focus on the emotion that somebody creates as opposed to the technical aspect of a move. Oh, my God, the world would end. But the emotion that she created in that promo when she delivered it in Spanish was off the chart. Off the chart good. The story, the layout of the match, it's 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag. Yeah. Whoever laid the match out, you know, oh, we could do this, and we could do this, and we could do this, and we could do this. And the problem was they couldn't properly execute half of this and half of that and half of this. It was too much. 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag. Perfect example. The match went too long. It was overly complicated. The ladies were trying to do things that they weren't quite good enough to do yet. They're trying to impress too many people, and it didn't work. But I want to talk a minute about Thea Trinidad. Do you know Thea? No. 
what an amazing young woman. Amazing. Zelina Vega in WWE. Yes. I first met her in TNA. She's a tiny little thing. Beautiful girl, beautiful smile, fun to talk to, positive personality, and talented, very talented. And I think shortly after I first met her, she told me a story how, about how she, her, her and her father used to, I think her father's name was Michael. Her, her and her father, and she had a brother named Tim. Her and her father and brother used to, that was their thing. They would watch wrestling. They would watch Nitro. Her, you know, she grew up as a 10-year-old being inspired, or, or, or maybe younger, being inspired by Rey Mysterio. You know, that was her, her motivation. And her father was killed. He was working in an investment firm. I think he was a, whatever he was. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't want to mis, misstate it. But he was on 103rd floor of the World Trade Center when the World Trade Center was attacked in 9-11. And she lost her father. And we had that conversation on 9-11. We were happy to be taping a show on 9-11 for TNA. And I could see her. She was walking around. And I had only known her for a week or two or three weeks or at least come into contact with her. And she told me that story. And I just, I, I, I didn't break down and cry in front of her because I, I didn't want to make her cry any more than she already was. But she told me that story. And I just, I had, I, I went and took a walk, you know, and I had, had to spend about 15 minutes getting my shit together because it was such a touching story. And I was so happy to see her go on and become successful in WWE. I know Vince loved her, you know, the talent, that she worked with the talent that she didn't work with, just the talent that she shared, you know, a locker room with in the backstage environment with all loved her. So I, I wish her the best. She is truly one of the nicest people that I got to meet while working in TNA or anywhere else for that matter. Where's this lovey dovey Eric, when we're talking about Dave Meltzer, he doesn't deserve it. Okay. There's a couple segments here with Jeff and Karen Jarrett at a theme park with all five of the kids. You got Karen's two and Jeff's three. The theme here is that Karen wanted a romantic honeymoon while Jeff took her all dressed up to a theme park and the <laughs> kids are running around having a good time while all she does is complain and blow a gasket, but he's oblivious. The problem was that Jeff came off like a complete baby face in all this. He took everyone to a pizza place and she's thinking she's getting wine, you know, at a pizza place in a theme park. Then she blows a gasket when the pizza comes and wants to go back to the hotel and the skit ended with them standing and, uh, a shower goes off and the kids get all wet and Karen is in her expensive gown and she gets all wet. And, uh, it's written here. Jeff and Karen were good, but this went nowhere. And when it was over, it felt like a waste of time. It is on a pay-per-view. This does feel maybe like it should have been a TV skit, but you love this skit, right? It was a character skit. It was designed to build character. Is there a rule in, in the Dave Meltzer school of pay-per-view logic that says you shouldn't build character or be entertaining on a pay-per-view? I'm sorry. I never read that book. Thank God I never read that book. You're, you're watching a pay-per-view or a television show or a play or a sporting event to be entertained. This was entertaining. I'm sorry. I don't care if it showed up on TV or a pay-per-view. It was entertaining as hell. And Jeff did a phenomenal, the kids did a phenomenal job for crying out loud. And Karen, to me, stole the show. When they were all sitting around at a table and Jeff finally shows up, I mean, the, 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 the sexual innuendo 
in this particular skit was off the rails, but it was done so well that unless you were inclined to look for it, you didn't really know it. But if you, if you had an eye or an ear for that kind of thing, you're going, Oh my God, I can't believe they slipped that in there. But yeah, absolutely. Karen was thinking she was going to go back to the hotel and get some, uh-uh, and instead she got a pizza. And when Jeff said, you're going to get all wet, she smiled and she did in out there in a, in a, in a kiddie pool or whatever yeah. it was, kiddie shower. So not at all what Karen expected. Did Jeff come off as a baby face? I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think he came off as a goof. I think he came off as a comedic character, but yeah, I guess I would go with Babyface because I kind of liked him. He did it so well. How do you not like a guy that performs that well? Right. Jeff did an outstanding job in that role. And I think maybe. not drinking anymore thank goodness he's he's turned his life around and is probably one of the more positive people that you or i both know um and successful because of it so i have nothing but a ton of respect for jeff jarrett <clears throat> however should the occasion arise and we ever talk about god what what if i think if jeff would have kind of found comfort in a role that was a more comedic light-hearted smarmy comedic, well, I already said comedic role. I think he would have nailed it because he played this part. I think he played it better than anybody else could have. So can't say enough good things about the spot. Don't really care what Dave had to say. He's never produced a pay-per-view. So his opinion is worth squat. I need you to produce some better internet. You got to get your provider out there next week. No, we had him out here yesterday. Um, and I came out here this morning and it's just still not working. So I'm, I'm going to, have them come out again and I'm bringing a gun out with me. <laughs> this could be our last episode, ladies and gentlemen. No, it could, uh, no, it could be his last install. Uh, there you go. Uh, next up, we've got Hernandez beating Matt Morgan, 13 minutes and 31 seconds. It's a first blood match. So, you know, Eric love that. Meltz would say not much to this. Morgan was making a comeback when a fan in quotes hit the ring. Uh, referee Brian Hebner went to guillotine him, but they ended up outside the ring. Somehow, and this wasn't shown, the fan must have laid out Hebner while the wrestler stood there and did nothing. Hernandez pulled out a chain, but Morgan got it from him and hit Hernandez. Hernandez went down, and the camera gave us a nice close-up of Hernandez cutting his forehead. He was bleeding, but then he squirted some red coloring on Morgan's chest. Hebner was still down, and referee Jackson James ran in, looked at Morgan with red coloring on his chest and no cut, Signaled for the bell and awarded it to Hernandez. The match didn't click and the finish was terrible. Dud. This feels like the most TNA description of a match ever. Uh, we should probably just rewind it and start all over again. Let's say you. I would just as soon forget that it ever happened. I mean, it was just a colossal, just car wreck from the beginning to the middle to the end. The heat on the referee. What good does that do you? None, the fake blood angle, worse, the execution in the ring, abysmal, um, logic story, eh, non-existent sucked beyond there. Is, there just aren't enough adjectives to describe the suckage suckage smudge that this match, um, was full of full of suckage t-shirt. I can't help, but ask why not just have him fucking win? Well, why couldn't it just be a regular ass win? I don't know, man. I didn't book it. 
The next match is a good one. It's Kazarian retaining the X division title in an ultimate X match over Robbie E Max Buck and Jeremy Buck 14 minutes and 18 seconds. Eric, there's still some people who listen to this show who are not subscribed to the impact plus app. They've never seen an ultimate X match. They don't know what that is. Can you describe an ultimate X match to an old WCW fan who's listening to this and has no frame of reference for what it is? Well, no, because the people in TNA couldn't explain what it was. Um, when you'd ask, when I would ask that question, what is, what, what is the X division? Well, the only rules are there are no rules. Okay. Well, that's a false count anywhere. No DQ match. So what is it really? Well, well, um, uh, well, it's just cool. Okay. So what is an ultimate X match? Well, it's, you know, it's like an X match only it's cooler. Why is it cooler? Well, cause there are no rules. Okay. Now that's, that was the, that was the logic that I was given whenever I would ask about the X division Now the ultimate X match was a little bit different than a typical X match, I guess, because it had that, X kind of uh, usually they use them for lighting their lighting grids, but they had kind of a X shape grid over the ring and the belt was hanging from it. So from an ideation point of view, for those of you that read, you know, dirt sheets, that means where the idea comes from. Um, not a bad idea visually. Cause it, you know, it was a little bit different than just hanging a belt on a pole, I guess <laughs> a belt on a stick match. So it was kind of cool. And the talent could use that lighting grid, uh, that framework that was above the ring. Um, and they did, and they used it effectively. So while I just got done shitting all over the, the conceit concept of, of the match itself, the execution because of the people involved was really awesome. I mean, uh, Jen, me young bucks, uh, early in their careers, by the way, they had a horrific, horrific promo right before this match with Christy Hemi, that was just, wow. I don't know how that ever made it to air, but they were young. They had no experience. I'm not being critical. They were literally, you know, learning fresh out of high school. I mean, come on. So not being critical. It just was what it was. Um, Kazarian had a promo with Borash right before this match. That was pretty solid. You know, Kazarian's a great promo when he's motivated and he has something real to talk about. Uh, Borash was never one of my favorite people on camera, but that's, that's subjective. That's just my opinion. But the match itself, I thought was pretty fucking good. If you like, you know, the high flying, high risk, uh, very innovative, you know, moves inside of the ring, utilizing the, the, the grid over the ring, the X, if you will. Um, Kazarian did some amazing, amazing work off the top rope. Uh, Generation me, AKA young bucks, Equally, you know, fantastic to watch in this ring. So in this match. So while the the match itself from a conception point of view makes little or no sense to me in terms of what it really was, um, the idea of these guys all competing for a chance to win the belt that was hanging from up above off this grid and the ability that it provided them to do a lot of really dynamic, visually stimulating stuff that you might not otherwise see. uh, I I would say it was pretty solid or, or better than it's pretty solid. It was damn good. What if I had a secret where you could 
years earlier. It's not a secret, baby. It's SaveWithConrad.com. Come on. Ask Toby in Edmond, Oklahoma. He left us a five-star review and wrote, Conrad's team was able to do everything I hoped for. They helped me reduce my mortgage term by 13 years. Think about that, folks. 13 years. Now, there's 12 house payments, of course, in a year. Duh. And if you're doing 13 years, that's 156 payments. You know what your mortgage payment is. Multiply it in your calculator by 156. That's how much old Toby saved. Not only that, he wrote, they paid off my car, my credit cards, and dropped my interest rate significantly. So let's recap. If you could go ahead and pay your house off 13 years faster, and oh, by the way, pay your car off with a greater tax deduction and a cheaper interest rate, and get rid of your credit cards and their high interest rates and get a greater tax deduction there, and also reduce your overall interest rate, how do you lose? You don't. This is a win-win-win situation, and that's what we believe in at SaveWithConrad.com. And oh, by the way, if you have a car loan, if you have credit card debt, not only is the interest rate higher than what you'd be paying if you went to SaveWithConrad.com, it's not tax deductible. You get to write off your mortgage interest. You don't get to write off that interest on your car. You can't write off interest on your credit cards, but you can on your mortgage. So why wouldn't you get a better rate on your mortgage? Cut the years down, get rid of the car payment, get rid of the credit cards, retire faster by retiring your debt faster. We can run the numbers for you and your family right now at First Family. Just go to SaveWithConrad.com. That's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And did I mention no house payments for two months? It's SaveWithConrad.com. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. This is a fun match to watch. Um, Meltzer says, Kazarian was walking on the cable, holding onto a structure over the cable. Robbie was in the ring and grabbed a ladder, uh, which is used to be against, which used to be against the rules and ultimate acts. He climbed while Kazarian walked on the ropes. Kazarian stomped on these hands as they tried to get the belt, then grabbed the belt and came down two and a half stars. Lots of crazy spots from everybody involved, including the young bucks. It's fun to go back and, and see this match now with the context of today, but this ultimate X concept, man, this was something else. Yeah. If you like this kind of thing, then yeah, it was something else. It was cool to watch again, story psychology. And we're going to kind of throw that out the window and just blow some great spots out there and a ton of them and do some high risk stuff and very fast pace. So, and, and again, I'm not being critical. It sounds like I am. And I apologize for that, but you make a choice, you know, we're going to go out and do something that people don't normally see. And we're going to put the whole storytelling and the psychology, and we're going to put that off to the side and replace it with a bunch of really spectacular um, athletic high-risk spots. And there's a big audience for that. It may not be my cup of tea. doesn't matter. There's a lot of people that dig it. Right. And for those people that dug it then and dig it now, this is something you should go back and watch. It's a spectacle. I, I like it. Uh, next up, we've got Robert Rude and James Storm. Of course, we know him as Beer Money. They're going to pick up a win over Shannon Moore and Jesse Neal, which is Ink Ink. They retain their tag straps here in 12 and a half minutes. Smeltzer would say solid match, but the crowd was kind of quiet, perhaps due to this being a babyface match. Storm gave Neal a super kick and gave Moore a backstabber. 
And then they did the double team DWI on Moore and Rude, uh, or on Moore and Rude got the pin, uh, two and three quarter stars. Beer money, man. Great tag team. I mean, it feels like this is just another example of that. Uh, and Ink Inc. obviously held their own unique look, working hard. Pretty good little match here. What'd you think? It was decent. I mean, beer money was at the top of the game. Fun yep. to watch. Love their characters. They were so synced up, man. They were, they were as precise as a Rolex, you know, they're just, everything fit perfectly. Um, masterfully, um, can't say enough good things about beer money as a team, you know, ink, ink, uh, Jesse Neal was greener than goose shit. And he just didn't, he tried really hard. He's a good dude. Um, and the look and the fucking spike hair and Shannon Moore with the stitches on his face. He kind of looked like the scarecrow and wizard of Oz. I know they thought it was cool. Cause I should say, because not cause, right. Because that may have been their kind of personal little world and their vibe. And they related to that kind of thing, but 98% of the rest of the world didn't and doesn't. So those characters just did not resonate at all with anybody, but them. I, I just, I don't, I mean, I get it. You know, guys get excited about a character because they relate to it and they're not thinking about what the vast majority of the audience relates to. So you're entertaining an audience of one that you're looking at in the mirror. It doesn't work. And I think that's a, big part of the reason that this particular tag team, aside from the fact that Jesse Neal was as green as he was, he was fresh out of Bubba and Devon's wrestling camp down in Orlando. You know, you need five, six, eight, ten years of experience before you really learn the art and begin to master it, not master it, begin to get a handle on it. Um, and Jesse was like, I don't know what, 18 months out of wrestling school. So just, yeah, it was what it was. Last month, we saw uh, Matt Hardy working with Rob Van Dam. Today, AJ Styles. AJ gets the win in 1736. Styles uses a Pele kick on Flair. Uh, Hardy lands a DDT and then did a moonsault, but Styles kicks out. Matt goes up top. Styles hits him with another Pele kick. Styles then lands a spiral tap on Hardy while Hebner stops Flair from interfering and counts three. Meltzer would say, not a great match, but still the best thing on this show. Three and a quarter stars. I guess the goal of putting flair against styles is to make sure that styles is the big baby face. what do you think of the match? Um, uh, I thought AJ styles did a f phenomenal. You're welcome. AJ job, um, carrying Matt Hardy, who is not at his best in this match. Matt's offense was pretty decent. His selling was abysmal. Matt wasn't in any kind of shape at all. He looked horrible physically, uh, carrying a lot of weight that you, you know, just weren't used to seeing him carry. He came out in his dreadlocks. He looked like a little mini Umaga, um, in my opinion. And, and that's, you know, the, the, normally that shouldn't matter as long as you can move, but he couldn't, his selling was horrible. His timing was horrible unless he was on offense and it was pretty decent, but, uh, AJ made up for it. I think AJ AJ probably worked as hard as AJ has ever worked trying to make a match that was otherwise kind of bleh, look pretty decent. And all of that credit goes to AJ and sorry, Matt, I dig you. You're a cool cat, but this was not your best night. Um, 
you owe AJ a beer. <laughs> I don't know if AJ drinks, but if he, if he doesn't, then you owe him a pizza or a veggie burger or yeah. whatever AJ does. Next up, we got Mr. Anderson going to a no contest with Rob Van Dam in a match for the top contendership. They go nearly 13 minutes. Meltzer would say the finish saw RVD do a cross body and both flew over the top. Anderson gave RVD the mic check on the floor, but it was far enough away. And Anderson was shaken up by his own move that as he tried to stagger to the ring, the 10 count just ended and it was ruled a double count out. I think most figured this wouldn't be the finish because they had not built to a finish. And this came out of nowhere. And then they started building the main event star in a quarter. I know that this isn't exactly what you pay for on a pay-per-view you want finishes, but I kind of like this a double count out out of nowhere like this. What'd you think? Yeah, I know it is. You get a mixed emotion. I felt the same way when I watched it. It's like my first reaction, because I've been conditioned this way. Uh, I've conditioned myself this way is why the fuck would you do that on a pay-per-view? Cause the idea is to leave people feeling good, right? To give them closure on a story. That's what a pay-per-view is. Not all the time. You don't always have to end stories on a pay-per-view. You can continue a story or you can start a story on a pay-per-view. Not every arc. If you've got nine matches on a card, or in this case, I think eight, if you've got eight matches on a card, um, not all of those matches would have been building for four, six, eight weeks and coming to his final, you know, closing moments of act three on a particular pay-per-view. You would, you would stagger the story arcs so that while some were ending, some were at mid arc, some were beginning. So I, I remind myself of that sometimes when I'm watching pay-per-views that not every match has to be a conclusive end to a story. Now, as for the finish, let's back up a little bit before we get to the finish. Again, if you're a connoisseur and you're listening to this podcast and want to be further enlightened and can better uh, achieve that enlightenment by going back and looking at what we're talking about, which I encourage you to do, go back and look at the promos by both RVD and Kenny Anderson leading up to this match. I dare say from a producer's perspective, Rob Van Dam cut one of the better promos of his career. Not one of the most intense. There wasn't an angle. Nobody got bloodied in the middle of the promo. It wasn't an over-the-top promo. But in terms of it being coherent, getting us inside the head of RVD, helping his character grow, in the process, making RVD more interesting, but yet keeping him within that kind of mystical RVD world was very, very good. One of the best ones I've seen RVD do. And it, but I say, as I said, it was focused. It was focused on what the match was and what the goals were. So I really liked RVD's interview. Going back to Ken Anderson and some of the criticism of, of by Dave Meltzer of Dave Anderson in his character, go back and look at this promo. You tell me if Ken Anderson wasn't the best promo in, in, in TNA at the time. Or I know the answer to that because it's obvious. Go back and look at that particular promo that Ken Anderson did right before this match and ask yourself if Ken Anderson isn't one of the best promos in the business at that time. In terms of believing his character and delivering his dialogue 
Now you have to look at it from a producer's point of view, not a dirt sheet writer's point of view, but from a television producer or film producer's perspective, look at that character, the delivery of the dialogue by Ken Anderson and ask yourself in an honest moment, being as objective as you're capable of being, if Ken Anderson is not one of the best promos in the business at that time in 2010, I suggest that he's in the top seven or eight in the industry at that point. Whether he was a derivative, because that's cool, of a so-called Steve Austin character, or whether he's ripping the fucker off. I don't care. He was really doing a good job. The match itself, I thought, was pretty good. I got a little excited about it. The the finish, as we were discussing moments ago, my first reaction was, what? But knowing that there's another day and you can advance that story, I, I wasn't. It wasn't as bad if the main event would have come off the way the main event should have come off. The finish in that match would not have been as bad. But we went from a both guys throwing themselves out, double count out to a diarrhea finish. Yeah, that was pretty horrible. (laughs) I don't know why diarrhea finish got me, but it did. Because you've never heard it before. (laughs) Uh, Here we are. The real diarrhea finish. Maybe the most talked about thing. Uh, from TNA in the whole year, maybe the business that year. Let's start at the beginning. When did you first see Jeff Hardy this day? About three minutes before he walked out through Gorilla. So, a lot of times, you know, you even mentioned it earlier, guys get together in catering. You didn't see Jeff in catering or at any point during the no. morning or afternoon or anything like that. It, it, Jeff's MO at the time was to get, get to the lot, Universal Studios, check in, and go hide until he was absolutely necessary. And it was either interview time or match time. But he, I don't even, to this day, I don't know where he hid. But he, he found a little nook in a cranny somewhere where he could, by after showing up at 11 o'clock in the morning, which I think was call time for talent, um, he'd show up, wave, and hide until 6 o'clock. So do you think he was doing that because he was antisocial? Was he working on his music? Was he getting in the right frame of mind for his performance? Well, I don't know, you know, on a week-to-week basis, what Jeff did when he was hiding in whatever spot he was hiding in. I can tell you on this night, I think it's safe to assume he was hiding wherever he was hiding and doing whatever drugs he brought with him. So you see him three minutes before he goes out. I assume I could be wrong. You're in gorilla position. I was standing near gorilla. I was within, I was within eyesight of gorilla. I wasn't in gorilla, but I was standing probably 40, 50 feet away from gorilla. So I was seeing people as they were approaching gorilla. So we've heard, you know, on the WWE side of things that oftentimes what'll happen is a producer will, will have the show timed and they'll sort of run and get whoever is up next. Like, Hey, so-and-so you're up next by 10 minutes. Need to see you in gorilla or something. Just a reminder to go fetch that person. If you will, did TNA have something like that in this era? Yeah. Yeah, there was any, you know, Pat Kenny was an agent. So obviously Terry Taylor, I'm not sure if Terry, Terry, I think was still there at the time. Terry was an agent. Um, there were a couple other agents there. I don't mean to, to, to um, dismiss sure. them, but there were, yeah, there, there was three or four or five agents that were, you know, their job was to 
you know, they herded the cats. Yes. There you go. When it was time for the cat to go out to the ring and chase the ball. They would go find the cat and they would chase the cat until the cat made it to gorilla. Um, so yeah, that was the case. So we've got that going on and you're near gorilla and you see Jeff Hardy. I assume an agent is bringing him over. And and I could see from the distance that I was at, it was, I mean, I'm not an expert on drugs, believe it or not. I've, I've dabbled, not going to deny that, but, um, I've seen enough of it from a distance and up close to, to recognize it. Now it was a little tougher with Jeff because he had so much makeup on. You couldn't really, you know, it's not like sitting across the table from somebody that's about ready to face plant in a bowl of mashed potatoes, you know, he had his gimmick all on and Jeff was a little kind of kabuki-ish anyway on, on a good day. Um, so it didn't, it wasn't obvious to me, but what was obvious, and I think it was Pat Kenny. I could be wrong about this, but I, the, the agent, um, it's the red flag. Cause the agent looked at me like, Whoa, what the fuck are we going to do? First of all, it took forever to find Jeff. So he was really late getting to gorilla, which is probably why I was in the proximity that I was in. Normally I didn't hang around a gorilla. Right. I would go back to my trailer and watch the show on a monitor by myself without being around anybody because <clears throat> I don't like crowds, even little ones. So um, knowing and hearing that they were having a difficult time finding Jeff, I kind of made my way over to gorilla. When I saw Jeff approaching, I didn't really notice Jeff being twisted up as much as I noticed the look on the agent's face. And that's kind of what brought me in closer to gorilla just to try to figure out what the fuck's going on. So, Pat makes the approach and he said to you, what the fuck are we going to do? Or you could just see it on his face. No, by that time, once I got close to Jeff, it was obvious he was fucked up. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm identifying Pat. I'm not sure if it was Pat, but whoever the agent was essentially said he's fucked up. He's too fucked up to work. And then it became, okay, who's calling this? Cause it wasn't my job. You know, I was the executive producer of the television show. I technically had no authority whatsoever and no official role in the pay-per-view unless I was a talent or unless I was asked to input on creative, which often I was, but not, not always. So I just, I'm kind of standing there waiting for somebody to make a decision and no decisions are being made. Now Jeff's making his way out to the ring. Let me, let me ask who's in gorilla at that time. So you're, you're near gorilla. You know, we know on the WWE side of things, these days, Vince is on a headset seated right next to Bruce. And there's usually some other agents hanging around. What was the TNA impact gorilla spot? Like at this, at this show, oh. is Dixie on a headset? No, sometimes, sometimes I can't remember if she was this night or not. Um, it's usually Terry Taylor. There were one or two other people, Jimmy Tillis, not Jimmy, not Jimmy Tillis. Um, God, I can't remember his name and I apologize. He knows who he is and he's probably listening to the show. And now I sound like a complete asshole and I apologize. It's been a minute. Um, but whoever was on gorilla, it wasn't in, here's the problem. It really wasn't a person of authority. Okay. That's what I wanted to get to. Cause you said I was waiting for a decision to be made and no one was making a decision. What, what, who was in charge? If you weren't in charge, where was Dixie? Who, who, if Dixie's not there, well, a, where was Dixie and B, 
who had she sort of appointed, Hey, while I'm doing whatever the shit I've got to do for our business, you're running this. So take over. Yeah. There, there was no captain of the ship in gorilla. Okay. And Dixie would have, I think Dixie was close because she was, she was there and it was my exchange with Dixie that was the catalyst for me to say, fuck it. Nobody else is going to do anything. This shit's the bell's going to ring and it can't go down like this. I just didn't. And I don't want to make this sound like I'm putting myself over or I cared so much about staying or it was the show. I was concerned about the show. I didn't want sting going out there and trying to have a match with a guy who was completely fucking wasted. Number one. Well, I wasn't worried about Sting getting hurt because Sting was able to take care of himself, but the match would have been the shits. And I didn't want Sting to be in that position. Sting didn't know that Jeff was going to Sting. He had no idea that Jeff was going to show up fucked up. What was he was, where was Sting when you see Jeff Hardy making the approach with Pat Kenny? Or he was you, backstage. So he was, I, he, he was gorilla. Is there a verbal communication or do y'all just lock eyes and realize, oh, this is bad. Locked eyes. Okay. And then I'm looking for a decision, I'm looking yeah. for somebody to come up with an idea. What do we do? Clock's ticking. We don't have a lot of time, folks. Can't right. call a meeting. Can't call Dallas. Somebody's got to call the ball. Who's going to call it? Crickets. Fuck it. I literally walked through the cur- curtain, not knowing what I was going to do. So before we get to that, Hardy comes out first. It's apparent yep. he's under the influence. Let's just read. Let me me give you the the countdown here uh, from uh, Meltzer. Sting pinned Jeff Hardy in a minute 28 to retain the title in a match that will long be remembered for nothing that will be good. Hardy stumbled to the ring. Eric Bischoff came out and gave a speech where he announced he wanted to level the playing field, saying that they had a title change match on television and Sting knew he was wrestling Hardy well ahead of time, but Hardy didn't know until the match started. So he announced this would be a no DQ match saying Hardy has been aware of it for some time, but he's telling sting now Hardy teased. He's going to throw his t-shirt to the fans, teased it a few times and then didn't do it. The two locked up sting kicked Hardy chopped him and did the scorpion death drop. Hardy went to uh, kick out, but sting held him down and the referee didn't hesitate at all on the count point being as if sting had called an audible in the ring because of the condition Hardy was in the ref was aware of it. Hardy got right up after taking the finish, acting confused as opposed to mad and seemed to ask the referee, what was that all about? Sting left the ring and looked really mad that he had to be a part of this. I think everyone expected the match to be restarted. And then they had Mike Tanay and Taz start stretching and doing voiceovers of highlights of all the earlier matches. And we're going to talk about the rest of the story, but real quick here. When do you have a conversation with Dixie? Cause you said you saw, you talked to her briefly. What's said there in the exchange. It was not a conversation. It okay. was more of a, it was more of a eye contact and did, did she do a show? The, did she do like puppy a puppy in the park? Look on her face. Okay. Like what the fuck do I do? There was no conversation. There wasn't time to have a conversation. Okay. So she sort of looks at you, maybe, uh, with that lost look in her eyes, maybe does a shoulder shrug or whatever. And you realize we got to do something. I'll go do it. 
So you walk through the curtain and you said a moment ago, you had no idea what you were going to do. Sting had no idea either. Everybody's just going to go try to wing it and figure it out. Well, I knew what I was going to do. Well, I, there were two things that were crossing my mind and they were happening simultaneously. My first instinct was because I was a heel, right? I thought I might, and this is going to sound like tough guy shit, by the way, my daughter could have knocked out Jeff Hardy right. at that point. So this isn't badass tough guy right. bullshit. This is, I could have gotten a 12 year old out of from ringside to go in and punch Jeff in the mouth and he would have dropped like a rock. Right. Okay. So my first thought, because it seemed like the easiest, most direct line between a and B is for me and my heel character to go out and just knock him out, just drop him, and then have the referee call the match and disqualification and whatever we could come up with. But by the time I walked through the curtain, by the time I got halfway up down the aisle, I realized that wouldn't work because of the no DQ thing. So I started improving a story in, in laying out a promo that I could. And what I was trying to do was buy time to figure out how to communicate to both Jeff the referee and sting because now I got to rewrite the show while I'm in the ring <laughs> and the show's happening. And one of the people in the match is completely disabled and not able to continue. So I did what I did. I basically, you know, told Jeff, take his finish. We're going to shorten this up, take his fucking finish. I went to Sting. Now that's where it got, I had to get a little more creative because I was trying to talk to Sting at the same time I was trying to cut a promo. Yes. And trying to hide it all and make it look like it was part of the show. Right. But I basically told Sting, hit him with your finish, get him the fuck out of here. Let's go home. Sting was able, I think, to communicate with the referee. I didn't have to talk to the referee. So that was it. Was there armchair quarterbacking about this decision when you come back through the curtain? I mean, clearly you're trying to make the best of a bad decision. Meltzer wrote right. As I said, I think everyone expected the match to be restarted, but then they had Mike Tanay and Taz start stretching and doing voiceover highlights of all the earlier matches. Was there obviously with the benefit of hindsight, a lot of things could have happened differently. Was there guys coming up to you in the back afterwards saying, Hey, I would have wrestled sting or I could have helped or obviously you had to make a call right then split decision. We got to go with it. We got to do something. What's yeah. I mean, I mean no, the answer is no. And, and if anybody, I, I I'm glad nobody came up to me and said, Hey, what, I could have jumped in. Well, great. And if we would have had 45 minutes to plan that. And communicate it to everybody involved, including the guys in the truck, by the way, sure. including the guys at time to show and including, you know, and, and, and oh, by the way, we'd have to kind of bring sting into the equation. So he would, could participate, you know, cause he's kind of involved too. Yeah. Uh, fantasy booking, which everybody's, you know, a big fan of. Yeah. That could have worked, but not when you've got about 45 seconds to figure shit out, but no, there wasn't, there was no, there was the, the overwhelming um, fog that settled in backstage yeah. was disappointment for Sting, 
because I think everybody could kind of put themselves in his shoes. It was a horrible position for Sting to have been in at that stage of his career, at his level of stardom to subject someone like Sting to a situation like that was embarrassing yeah. and just undeserved. Um, I think it reflected a tremendous amount of lack of professionalism within the entire TNA organization from top to bottom. And I think people were generally sad for, for Jeff because Jeff, you know, despite the fact that he did something really very stupid and selfish and every other adjective you could think of that's bad, people like Jeff. Yeah. People love they people love Jeff. Yeah. People had a lot of respect for Jeff. And I think this it was it was disappointment for Sting and sadness for Jeff. That was the overwhelming sense. Nobody was second guessing anything or blaming anybody or pointing fingers or any of that. It was just it was just really sad more than anything. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. You could see the uh the expression on Sting face Sting's face. It really told the story of how frustrated. Yeah. He was here. You know, I've never, uh, this morning watching this, you know, and I'm sure I'll see Sting down the road, wink, wink. Um, And I'd like to have a conversation with him about this because we never did. Sting and I never talked about this moment. You know, we obviously we reacted to it and tried to figure out a way to make, you know, chicken salad out of chicken shit the following week or whatever. But I never really said, you know, Steve, on a personal level, what was going through your mind in the moment, not after the fact, after the fact you feel and think differently because you've had time to digest the situation and analyze it and apply whatever belief system that you have to it. And it changes everything, but I would love to know in that moment, while it was happening live, what was going through Steve's mind on a beat by beat until I came to him and gave him the finish. What was he thinking? Was he coming Was Steve coming up with Sting? was Sting coming up with his own alternative solution because he had to know he clearly knew what was, I'd I'd love to know that. And maybe we'll cover that here. You know, at some point, if either you or I get a chance to sit down with Sting and ask him, I'd I'd love to hear that. We could do a follow-up. You know, you think just with a few extra minutes, you could have had Matt Hardy slide in the ring and, you know, do something or whatever. Yeah, but, but you, you would think that if you weren't there. Right, right. No, I'm not we're, arguing. We're, I'm, we're, no, no, no. I know you're not. I'm, I'm not saying you, right? But a wrestling fan or an audience member or somebody who just loves what we do here, for example, might say, well, why couldn't you have just grabbed some guy with you and, and created interference? Well, there was no guy around. Yeah. That's important yeah. to remember too. Th- this is the end of the show. So a lot of the guys have already gone back, showered, changed clothes. Half of them aren't there anymore. They've left. They're not even in the building. There may be still some hanging around, but they're no longer in their gear. They haven't stretched. They haven't prepared. Nobody knows. You're just, you're literally shooting from the hip here. Yep. L- let's talk a little bit about the fallout from this. I talked to Bruce Pritchard about this a long time ago on something to wrestle. And he essentially said after this, Jeff went home and nobody talked to him for a while. 
And then when they do bring him back, he, he does like an apology to the locker room. Do you remember any of that? Yeah. Because I was the one Dixie wanted, you know, Dick, I've said this before Dixie loved Jeff. Yeah. And this is not a knock on Dixie. I think it's a, I think it's one of her, uh, more admirable attributes yep. as a human being. She's a nurturer. She ca- genuinely cares about people. Um, she really does try to help people. She's got a very kind heart sometimes maybe more than she should, you know, or not more than she should. You should never have a kinder heart than you should. But I think if you don't, if you're not able to separate those who are trying to take advantage of that kind heart from those who just need it, you find yourself in a bad spot. And that's where Dixie was. Um, she, uh, she just wanted to help Jeff. I, I was adamant about not bringing Jeff back. I was, it wasn't my call. And I'm not even sure if anybody asked me my opinion, but I expressed it anyway, because I felt that strongly about it. But Dixie was determined and not that she needed me to compromise because I wasn't in any position of authority, but just because we had a relationship, you know, my advice to her was, if you're going to bring him back, you at least need to hold him accountable by making him apologize to every single guy on the roster. And that was my idea. Not because I wanted to hear it. I didn't give a fuck. Yeah. I was done with Jeff Hardy at the time. I wouldn't have given him the time of day um, at that point because I was so angry with him for being as unprofessional as he was. And I look, I've, I've screwed shit up. I've been unprofessional. I've made choices and decisions that I regret. We all have, but Man, when you're the main event on a pay-per-view and you spend five or six hours in a fucking cubby hole somewhere behind a soundstage, getting as narked up as you possibly can, you, that's way too selfish. That's beyond bad judgment. And, and I was adamant, but she, so was Dixie. So Jeff did come in and he manned up, you know, and if it, my, my opinion of Jeff actually changed after yeah. that. But that day it was like, what the fuck? Why even spend five minutes bringing talent together in a room to listen to his bullshit? That's how I felt about it. I wouldn't have wasted. I wouldn't have taken somebody away from bad catering to to take five minutes out of their day to listen to Jeff Hardy apologize if it would have been my choice, but it wasn't. Somebody we don't talk about a lot in this situation. I brought up a minute ago, kind of a bad spot for Matt Hardy to be in too, right? Well, sure. You know, shit rolls downhill. You know, he, he, he got, you know, he, he wasn't a part of, well, I, I mean, I don't know if he was or he wasn't. Well, but the I don't idea know what is Matt knew or didn't know, but nonetheless, whether he should have or shouldn't have, I mean, Matt showed up for his match and he was fine. Right. I'm not, I'm but, not insinuating they did anything inappropriate together or, or whatever. I'm just saying a lot of folks lump those two guys together. So when your brother does something bad, yep. a lot of people are going to look at you and that's not exactly fair. Um, no, it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair, but it did, you know, it just, like I said, it rolls downhill and Matt is standing right next to Jeff in the minds of most people. So guess who's going to get hit first. Meltzer would write, uh, Hardy did this just days before his latest court appearance for drug possession and distribution charges. He did this only a couple of months after he was nearly stripped of the title and pulled off the final resolution pay-per-view on December 5th, when the belief was he was loaded again, 
but he claimed he was exhausted from a tour of the middle East and personal appearances over the previous week. Hardy lost the title to sting on February 24th, partially because it made for a good story and likely that if he ended up pleading guilty to drug charges, he would not be TNA's current champion at the time. He was not scheduled to win this match, nor was he scheduled to be in the title picture at the lockdown show. I guess it's fair to point out. This is really just another incident in a string of incidents that Jeff was having with the company in hindsight. Should we have let it get this far when you know, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There was uh, a lot of looking the other way. Were they doing that? And boy, this is going to be tough. Were they doing that out of the best interest for the company and making a selfish decision and, and calling it quote unquote business, or were they giving someone they loved and cared about the benefit of the doubt? It was mostly not having the balls or the vision or the leadership to make a decision about anything. TNA's website. Uh, announced that they're going to try to do a make good here. Meltzer would write. They also made a decision that they would give any fan who purchased the pay-per-view six months of free access to the company's TNA on demand.com library as a make good. The letter posted on their website two nights later read TNA wrestling strives to give fans who purchase our pay-per-views as close to a three hour event as possible. This Saturday's TNA victory road fell short of that standard. Your support of TNA is never taken for granted to show you how we value that support. We would like to offer six months of free access to the TNA on demand library to receive your free offer. Please send us a copy of your victory road pay-per-view purchase receipt. And they list the address. Please be sure and submit your name address and email address as we will be emailing a special code that will unlock over 300 hours of great TNA wrestling action. Now you've got to do damage control here, right? Eric, you've got to try to, uh, I don't know save some face with some paying customers, right? I guess, you know, I wasn't a part of that decision or discussion about that decision leading into it. That would have been Dixie and Dean Broadhead and God knows who else. It wouldn't have been me. Um, but yeah, they, they did what they could. I, I understand. I'm not knocking that. I just don't know anything about it. So I can't comment on it. I understand why they did it. You know, it's company company got kicked right in the balls. You know, company took a big hit company went down on both knees and was sucking air because of this. I mean, you got to do something, right? What are you going to do? Send them a free t-shirt. Was anyone upset with you for being the guy to step forward and go try to handle the best of a bad situation? Nope. Nope. Not that I know of. Nobody said anything to me and I couldn't read it on anybody's face. Right. You know, so. I'm assuming everybody was probably like, finally, let's whoever got us out of that mess would have been just fine. You talked to us earlier that usually after a big show like this, everybody goes across to the, uh, the hard rock and they start having some drinks and enjoying some fancy wine. What's the mood? What's the tone and tenor of that gathering afterwards? If it even happened, I don't think it even happened. It was a pretty dark evening. I mean, everybody, not that. Look, it was over. We knew it was a disaster. I have my own feelings about Jeff. And I, I want to make sure I'm clear about this. I changed my opinion of Jeff because of the responsibility that he took afterwards. Right. And I actually developed more respect for Jeff Hardy as a result of what happened than I had going into it. So 
want to be clear about that. And it is a success uh, story. I mean, he pulled the nose up. He, well, he, he is. And I mentioned to you this to you before and to our audience, I have a, a very close friend of mine who's his business is helping people in recovery and drug addiction. And until I met this individual, his name is Tim Ryan, by the way, until I met Tim, to me, I just put, you know, drug addicts. Oh, you're over here. You're in a kind of a low life category. Yeah. You're a loser. You're a low life. You, you can't handle life. So you revert to drugs. That was my very ignorant and very limited view of the world. And it wasn't until I met Tim that, and I began to understand the dynamics of drug addiction a little bit, not a lot. I'm not an expert, but you learn just by listening, you know, be, be, being in proximity, you can learn a lot if you keep a relative open mind. And as I learned more and more and more, it kind of has changed the way I look at things now when it comes to drugs. But back then in 2011, I had a very ignorant, limited view of things. Um, but now, especially now, I look back at Jeff and man, to overcome, even to, I feel the same way about Scott Hall, by the way. Yeah. We don't talk about Scott that much anymore. Um, he's, he's laid pretty low and he's staying quiet, but I never really liked being around Scott. In fact, not only did I not like being around Scott, I would work to avoid being around Scott when I worked with him. I didn't like being, I didn't like having dinner with him. If he came to the bar and I happened to be there, I'd find a way to, you know, a reason to leave. He's just not a pleasant person to be around or he wasn't, but I look at what Scott's gone through in his life, much like what Jeff has gone through with his addiction challenges and to be, to get up every morning and fight your way out of that. Cause it's the fight of a lifetime for some people. It's not an easy fight. It's not as easy as some people like me used to think, well, we'll just make up your mind not to do it. Well, fuck, if it was that easy, we wouldn't have a problem, would we? It gets a hold of you. And now when I look at what Jeff has done and overcome, and whether he's overcome it or he's continuing to try to overcome it, I have more respect for Jeff Hardy now than I've ever had. But it took a while. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. We took to Twitter and asked if you guys had any questions about Victory Road 2011. We got a bunch. Can't get to them all. We'll try to uh, hit a few here. Michael Eldridge wants to know how big of a negative impact, if any, did this Jeff Hardy situation have on the eventual demise of TNA? Of course, TNA has not had a demise. They're still around. They're still on impact or calling themselves impact now. Um, but this is a major blow. How much damage do you think it did to the company long-term zero? It was, it was where it was was so small. The brand was so insignificant. The loyal audience they had didn't give a damn. It just, it had nothing to do with the, it's, it's kind of like when people say, Oh, the finger poke of doom. That was what put WCW out of business. I mean, it's such a juvenile, you know, way of looking at things. Um, TNA was TNA was destined to failure. The minute that the funding partners behind TNA made the decision that they were not going to invest one more nickel in it, and it was going to live or die on its own. That was its death sentence. It took about 36 months for that to, that death sentence to be, you know, executed, but that's what killed TNA, not Jeff Hardy being a screw up. 
Pender J wants to know, was there a drug testing protocol in TNA before this? And if not, did this result in one? Uh, no, and no. Tyler Rogers said, uh, I've never heard of anything. I I mean, I I never got drug tested. I never heard about drug testing. So if there was drug testing, it's news to me. Tyler Rogers said sting face stings face said it all. What was Hogan's reaction? Hogan was really disappointed because Hogan, Hogan was such a Jeff Hardy fan, such a Jeff Hardy fan. Hogan was really, really disappointed. That's all I can say. Lots of people want to know if you were really in charge, would you fire Jeff Hardy over this? Unfortunately, yes, I would have because of my view of the world at that time and lack of knowledge and ignorance about the challenge. I, I, yes, at that point, I would have. At that point, I would have put him in jail for 20 years. He would not have seen the light of day. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have considered an apology rehab. He could have sprouted angel wings and flown to the set on his own. And I wouldn't have let him near television again. Now I was so adamant. Of, I mean, God almighty, you're in the main event with sting on a pay-per-view and you're making, I don't know what TNA was paying him, but it was a lot of money, especially compared to a lot of other talent and to fuck it up like that. How selfish could one be? That was my perspective at that time. And I have this weird weakness and it is a shame in my game as a human being. It's like once somebody crosses a certain threshold with me, it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to step back over. It's like once once you've gone that far, there's no coming back from it ever, ever. And I'm not proud of that. I'm only trying to contextualize the way I looked at things back then. And back then, there he he not only crossed that threshold, he catapulted himself over it with an Olympic pole vaulting event. And there would have been no coming back if it would have been up to me, but it wasn't, it was up to Bruce and, and Dixie. And when I, by the way, the, the, the apology, I think Bruce and I were the ones, it, it wasn't a solo event on my part, as far as convincing Dixie that if you're going to bring it back, he's got to apologize. Bruce, I think was also a part of that. Well, boys and girls, that's going to do it uh, for one of our most requested topics ever victory road, 2011. We'll be back next week to break down WCW's last ever pay-per-view WCW greed. If you've got a question for us, go ask it right now at 83 weeks. And as a reminder, you get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. You also get the incredible Eric fires back and, uh, Eric coming up later this month, we're going to be doing something kind of fun. Main tweet receipts. You've, uh, recently released some venom for personalities within the wrestling business, but you and I both get a lot of shitty tweets and you're going to get to fire off on some of those. What do you think? I'm going to knock some men efforts out. That's what I'm going to do verbally. Um, if not physically, I can't wait. I haven't knocked anybody out in God, three weeks. Well, let's knock out WCW greed next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. 
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.